You want to hear about players? You came to the right place. I'll be talking about players with Scott Pianowski of Yahoo Sports next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 26th. It's show number 33 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports discussing speculative call-ups. We'll talk a little bit about Ball 4 and Jim Bout. And we will talk about a bunch of players, including Nathan Eovaldi, Travis Darno, Wade Miley, Tyler O'Neill, and Danny Santana. And if that weren't enough players, there's still more. We'll also have a huge number of boons and banes from Scott Pianowski for the rest of the season. Speaking of players, we'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including injuries in the Milwaukee rotation, Ryan Zimmerman and other National League players, and Jock Thompson will have news from the American League, including Joey Gallo, Willie Calhoun, and other American leaguers. I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about pre-deadline ads, drops, and stashes. And of course, we'll have our commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer comment, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Arizona left-handed starting pitcher Alex Young. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at all the weekend matchups, including a marquee tilt between two elite right-handers, Walker Bueller of Los Angeles in Washington to take on the resurgent Nationals and Steven Strasburg. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about variation and regression. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? I saw a crazy end to a game in Tampa, and we gotta talk some baseball. In Wednesday's game between Boston and Tampa, I saw something I hadn't seen, well, ever, with five weird occurrences in the space of one half inning. You might have read about it. In the bottom of the eighth, Tampa was clinging to a 3-2 lead. The Rays manager Kevin Cash started the ninth with left-handed reliever Adam Kolarik, who got pinch hitter Sam Travis to pop up to first base for the first out of the inning. Clearly, the issue for Tampa was not how to get rid of Sam Travis, but how to manage the next two Boston hitters, right-handed hitter Mookie Betts and the red-hot left-handed hitting Raphael Devers. Cash had to use a lefty against Devers. His OPS versus right-handers is over 1,000, and his OPS against lefties is under 750. The problem, Kolarik was the only available lefty for Cash to use. The easiest play would have been to just let Kolarik pitch to Betts, who has no platoon advantage. He's actually tougher on righties this year. Then Cash could have let Kolarik continue against Devers, who does have that huge same-side platoon disadvantage to exploit. So, weird item number one was that despite not getting the platoon advantage, Cash called in right-hander Chaz Rowe to face Betts. And to solve the Devers side of the problem, weird item number two, after Kolarik got Travis, Cash left him in the game and put him at first base. G-Man Choi left the game. That led to weird item number three. Boston manager Alex Cora came roaring out of the dugout and got very worked up, arguing with home plate umpire Angel Hernandez. Go figure. 
Nobody knew what was going on, but the speculation was that Cora thought Cash had messed up his batting order, possibly by putting Kalarik into Choi's slot, when by rule he had to go into Austin Meadows' DH slot, with Rowe taking Choi's slot. After 20 minutes of inspired beefing by Cora, and uninspired, oh, what do we do now, kind of looks from Hernandez and the umpiring crew, they decided to put on the headsets and let the MLB Replay Center decide. Well, they apparently decided everything was okay. Rowe got bets on a fly ball, then left the game. Left-hander Kalarik came back from first base to pitch to the lefty Devers, with Nate Lowe coming in off the bench to join the game at first base. Now, according to the official box score, which I checked after the game, the Rays' moves were all kosher. Kalarik had indeed replaced Austin Meadows in the DH slot, and Rowe had taken Choi's spot before surrendering that slot to Lowe. Nonetheless, here's weird item number four. Cora had announced that the Sox were continuing the game under protest, so whatever happened, including a much-needed save from Emilio Pagan of my tout American League team, might yet unhappen if Major League Baseball were to uphold the protest, say for example if Cash's initial lineup explanations to Angel Hernandez were incorrect. Anyway, Kalarik got Devers to ground out to the right side, and that brought us right into weird item number five. The putout went from low to Kalarik covering the bag. So the final out in this game went from a first baseman who had replaced a pitcher to a pitcher who had replaced a first baseman. Baseball man, you gotta love it. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. Scott, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks so much for having me, Patrick. As usual, I'd like to ask our guest expert how many teams you're running this year in fantasy baseball and how they're doing. Yeah, I'm about uh, 10 seasonals this year, and it's uh, it's a mixed bag. I've had a couple of uh, really nice teams. I'm, I've been in contention in the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational all year, usually in the top five. I think right now as we sit, I'm in eighth place, but my, my team is going to at least contend, and I, you know, if maybe things go right, maybe I could win, although I wouldn't bet on that necessarily, but it's nice to make a run there. I had a decent team last year. I think I have a really good team this year. I might win the Yahoo Friends and Family League, which is – a league that's stocked with a lot of names that people would know, people who are tout wars and, and labor veterans. So it's always nice to do well at the league that I organize. So you always want to protect your own house. Right. I'll probably come in the money there and at least uh, maybe a shot at winning. Been some bad teams, though, too. I, my labor mixed league team isn't particularly good. And my tout league resume, tout wars, for whatever reason, the last few seasons has not been that good. And I'm, I've really tried to figure out what I'm doing wrong there. If I've just run bad, I'm you know, fall into the wrong players. I had Manny Machado the wrong season, but I wonder if maybe there's something about the website that I'm not familiar enough. I'm not doing the right queries. I mean, that, that's on me. I don't, I don't blame anybody else for it, but um, I don't know. For some reason, Tut Wars has not been a great jam for me in recent seasons. I am doing well in the Tut DFS. I already have a couple of tickets punched to the playoffs in that. So, you know, Patrick, I've never had that sandwich. I've never won Tut Wars and I've never gone to the great weekend that they have in March and, and you go to Foley's and they have the sandwich. I've always dreamt of that sandwich. I've won plenty of other leagues and I'm, I'm very secure in my role as a good fantasy player. I mean, I, I know I deserve to be doing this and all that, but I have not got the white whale of the Tout Wars championship and the sandwich. And I'm not going to do it in the, in the mixed league. My team is buried under 20 feet of snow, but maybe I can get to my sandwich through the DFS route. And then if so, man, that would really feel nice. Well, if you do, and I hope you do, I wish you all the luck in the world, but uh, you'd be following in my footsteps. I won that league, uh, I think, in its inaugural year in a very exciting final uh, final week. Uh, when you talk about the team... Sandwich, do you remember? What, what did you put on the menu? 
Yes, I do. It was called the, uh, because it was a DFS win, I, I got the the uh, turkey sandwich and called it the Davit Fowl Sandwich, DFS. And yes, it was uh, it was fun. Yeah. Uh, you sp- well, I don't remember how you're doing this year. Are you going to be in the uh, in the tournament at the end? Have you punched any tickets yet? Are you even playing in it? I'm not playing in it, actually. Uh, I meant to at the start of the year, and I kept missing it. You talked about doing well in a couple of teams, uh, the FBI in particular, and Yahoo Friends and Family. Do you have any players in common that uh, you targeted at the start of the year and really paid off? Uh, yeah, Matthew. Bo- well, I guess Matthew Boyd's not on both of my teams. He's only on my TGFBI team, but he's on a lot of my teams this year. And I think Zach Greinke is the other pitcher um, who's on a lot of my teams and on those two rosters in particular. And I I'm kind of sheepish to take credit for Granky because I thought he was going to be a really nice value and be a top 20 pitcher, top, you know, I don't know, 25, top 18, somebody who is kind of a high-end starting pitcher too. And he's pitched like an ace. He's been outstanding. And he's he's one of my favorite pitchers to watch because as his velocity has gone down, it hasn't changed his effectiveness as a pitcher. There aren't that many Major League Baseball players that I know. I don't want to say the person's name, but there's somebody who actually is a Major League player or was a Major League player once I asked him about Zach Greinke, and he gave me a really long answer about how thoughtful he was and how intelligent he was. And I, I know those don't always, just because you're those things doesn't mean you're going to be a great pitcher. But I remember after I read that, I thought, you know, I want Zach Greinke on my team, maybe a little bit more aggressive in fantasy than uh, than I have in the past. And this uh, this person, again, I don't want to say what his name, what his name is. He's told me this stuff in confidence. But he also begged me to get Joey Gallo this year, and I, I didn't listen to him. And I know Gallo's hurt right now, and maybe his second half's going to get ruined. But Gallo was a really big major profit player. So uh, maybe my anonymous scout is somebody I need to listen to more next year. He did steer me to Greinke, and I feel lucky because I think I've gotten overpaid on that. I would have been happy if, he, if Greinke just did what I expected, and he's actually been better than that. I don't remember who wrote the article, Scott, but a few years ago, many years ago, actually, I read a, a profile of Zach Greinke. It was, I think he, he, he was a very taciturn guy and doesn't normally, or at the time didn't normally participate in a lot of the, the um, self-publicity that so many athletes do these days to create their own brand or whatever. He was just kind of, I'll go out there, I'll th- throw every five days and leave me alone. But he had some kind of a, some kind of public perception issue, so he started doing a few interviews. And I remember reading one in which it came across that, first of all, he is really smart. Uh, the uh, writer was quite impressed with uh, how thoughtful his answers were. There wasn't the canned, you know, got to go out there every day and pitch well and blah, blah, blah. It was, uh, it was more thoughtful, which always augurs well, as you said, for how a pitcher ages. But the other thing that I didn't realize at the time, and I think probably now everybody knows, is uh, Zach Greinke was just a hell of an athlete as a kid. Like He played golf, he played tennis, he played uh, baseball, of course, and he was fantastic at all of them. Like he was, he, I think he grew up in Florida, which is a very sportsy state, and he was like, state-level tennis, state-level golf, state-level baseball, everything he did, he was good at. And in the article, it suggested this is the kind of guy who who could age well because he's going to be smart enough to an, uh, adapt to his declining skills and at the same time uh, athletic enough to figure out what he needs to do out there. I think Zach Greinke could have another th- two, three, four years in him. Yeah, I love all that. I, I get the idea that might have been a Joe Posnanski story. And I say that because Posnanski was in Kansas City with some overlap with Granke. They develop a relationship, and, and Joe has written. He's, a, of course, a fine sports writer. He's been with a bunch of different sites. He's written a lot of Granke stuff. At one point, he did a cover story 
on Greinke for SI, but if you just go to Joe's blogs, he feels like he seems like he does a Greinke story once a year. And I like that angle. Again, you know, some people will call these soft factors, and again, there are plenty of smart pitchers who aren't good enough to, to hack it. Um, you know, I remember how, how smart Brian Bannister was when he was a major league pitcher, and now he's, I think he's a pretty good announcer or he's a coach or something. I mean, Bannister really understands the game, but he just didn't have the talent maybe to be a breakthrough player. But there's probably something, there's a resourcefulness to Granke that I agree could age well, and I, and I love the fact that he's managed to find a way to be successful with the lowered velocity. Also, I think he's one of the uh, better hitting pitchers. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think he's one of the pitchers who isn't an automatic out at the plate either, and that doesn't surprise me. You think about sometimes they talk about a golfer, and they'll say, okay, this guy's got you know different component skills, and you know he's okay driving the ball, he's okay in, you know, with his irons, whatever, but he seems to score better than maybe those component things mean they add up to. And I, I, I get the idea that Greinke is probably one of those guys that – the parallel would be you know, the golfer who goes out and has an okay day but scores better than it seemed like he should. I think Greinke maybe goes to the mound with raw stuff. That, that's good, not overpowering, but maybe he scores better as a pitcher than you think he would with all the components. He's hitting 261 this year, 223 for his career, which is pretty good for a pitcher. Actually, nowadays, 223 would be pretty good for a, for a position player given the way things are going. Yeah, as well, a 304 ISO too, so he maybe could DH a little bit, uh, another Michael Lorenzen there. Uh, we had some sad news a little while ago, and as soon as I heard it, I thought about you because we've talked about Ball 4 and Jim Bouton uh, when we've met in person at Tout Wars or uh, in other locales. And, uh, of course, Jim Bouton passed away last week, and I know his legendary behind-the-scenes look at uh, Major League Baseball resounded with many fans, including you and me. Uh, what's your take on Ball 4 and the legacy of Jim Bouton? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. Rest in peace, Jim Bouton. Rest in peace, Bulldog. Ball Four is not my favorite baseball book of all time, and it's not my favorite sports book of all time. It's my favorite book of all time. And I was an English major, so I've I've read a lot of books. And what I loved about Ball Four, yes, it was funny, and yes, it was illuminating, and it was a tell-all book at the time. Uh, It it was considered racy and maybe even a little bit raunchy when it came out. The stuff's pretty tame now. Relative to, I mean, you put on HBO at any time of night, you know, you may have to run your kids away from the TV screen because, you know, the culture has just changed about what's acceptable. But what I love about Ball Four is how perceptive the book is. Somebody once said, I don't remember what critic this was, but said that Ball Four wasn't so much a book about baseball players. It was a book about human beings, about people who happen to be baseball players. And that, to me, sums, I think you could have used this book as a psychology level 300 400 course in college you know you could have studied this book you have a player who is struggling with the lack of his you know, the, the erosion of his skills he needs to come up with a new pitch that people see as kind of an oddball pitch he's a thinking man in a sport that kind of was not in favor of thinking men at the time and i don't know how much that's changed or if it's all that's changed so he goes to a new team he's clearly an outsider he's very excellent observer he's got a great ear He's got an eye for some of the BS that goes on in life and goes on in baseball, and yet he wants to fit in at the same time. He's, he's trying to do things that might be maybe outside of his comfort zone because he knows, one, fitting in might help him make the team, and, and two, he was never really one of the boys on his Yankee teams that he was on in the early 60s. He wants to maybe fit in more with the Astros or with the with the, with the Submariners, with the Pilots. I actually like the fact that it seemed that the Astros seemed to take him in more acceptingly than maybe the Pilots did, but... It's a very perceptive book. I found it to be, I mean, it didn't radically change my life when I read it, but it did change my life in the sense that it gave me, I think, a little bit more confidence to have different ideas. 
and to not necessarily feel like I had to conform all the time. I, I wasn't doing anything radical. I mean, Bouton was protesting the war, and he was taking some stances that were unpopular at the time, and the book wasn't very popular at the time either. I think, I think it's aged a lot better than that, and now people see that you know, he was proven right on so many things. But um, I recommend it to people constantly. If you go to Amazon, if you buy the, the final pitch version, which was self-published by Bouton, and has all the updates of what happened after Ball 4. He made a comeback in the late 70s. He was a sportscaster for a while. Uh, he had tragic loss of his daughter in the 1990s. He was eventually invited back to Old Timers Day by the Yankees. He made peace with Mickey Mantle, who he had a, a falling out with, but they made peace before Mantle died. So a lot of things happened about and after he died. Just, again, I'm really, he's a funny, interesting, very concise writer, too. You know, great writing. We think a lot of times, you know, great writing has to be long. It has to be wordy. It has to be these Faulkner paragraphs that go on for three pages. Belton is a very tidy, efficient writer. And uh, I would have loved to have seen, by the way, the, the full version of Ball Four because I, I think they cut out like seventy percent of it because it was just too long at first. But uh, he's just a really interesting thinker and observer. And you know, the guy invented things. He invented big league chew. He invented um, a, a baseball card company that you could customize your own baseball cards. He invented a bunch of things that didn't take. He had something called the baseball brain, which was a slide ruler, which was supposed to show you what was likely to happen based on the the hitter and pitcher at play. We actually have some version of that now. It's called the internet. And I think Bouton was probably ahead of his time with that. He just didn't know how to market it and how to maybe make it uh, fit what people wanted at the time. But, you know, he considered one of his hobbies jewelry making. He considered one of his hobbies inventing. He's just an interesting thinker, a different person. The book is extremely portable. I read it constantly. I've given it away constantly. Anybody who hasn't read it or hasn't read it recently, I, I can't say strongly enough, you know, get over to one of your booksellers and get a copy of that because it's just good for the soul to read Jim Bouton. It is, and uh, I, I took to heart what you said about uh, that it was a book about people playing baseball rather than a book about baseball players. Uh, of course, when I read it the first time I was in high school, uh, my best friend, who's a real baseball fan, gave me his copy, and uh, I had it for 25 years or something like that before it literally fell apart from, from being read. Now I have a hardcover version. But what I remember thinking about it as it, as I grew over the years, I read it every spring training, and and. When I first read it, it felt like this was a book about baseball players, and it was it was mostly attempting to be funny because when you're you know 17 or 16 years old, that's kind of where you're where you live when you're reading a lot of times. But as I got older, I started realizing, you know what? Every one of the guys in that pilot's clubhouse, every one of them, I've seen in my workplaces, I've seen in my university experience, I've seen uh, uh, among my the committees that I serve on, among my neighbors here in the condo complex where I've lived uh, for a few years, and my neighbors in, in past places. I mean, there's always a Fred Talbot. Everywhere you go, there's always going to be one Fred Talbot, and, and you can kind of realize it. And there's going to be a Steve Hovley, you know, a thoughtful, quiet guy who really thinks about stuff. There's going to, all of these guys are archetypes rather than just one-offs, in addition to being real, unique, individual, interesting characters. Yeah, that's such a great point. And you think of the front-running that Bouton talks about. He talks about Jim Turner, his old pitching coach for the Yankees, who if you were going good, he was your best friend. And if you were going bad, he wouldn't even talk to you. And he talked about all the second-guessing that you'd get on the Seattle staff and how he thought Sal Maglai, who was one of his idols as a kid, was maybe going to be a great pitching coach, but he wasn't. And it's funny, one of the heroes, he's not mentioned all that much in Ball 4, but one of Bouton's heroes is Johnny Sane, who's a great pitching coach who has all sorts of wonderful wisdom in the book. And Sane was always bouncing around from job to job because he got along great with the pitchers, and he wasn't a buddy-buddy 
guy with the managers that he would work with. He wasn't the drinking buddy, you know, same, I don't think Sane even drank at all. So a lot of times if you're going to be in baseball, the best thing you can do is be best buddies with the people who make decisions the people who fill out the staffs. Same was trying to make his pitchers better. And I just seemed like he was, and he helped a, a, a loads of, of pitchers through baseball, you know, with, with different things, with teaching them how to cut their fastballs or, or teaching them how to add a pitch or scrap a pitch. But a, a guy who seemed legitimately interested in the development of his pitchers, not necessarily the development of Johnny Sane's reputation. He's, I think of the movie Rounders, you think of who Kanish is. To me, Johnny Sane is the Kanish of Rounders. And uh, we should give credit where it's due to somebody who passed away many, many years ago, and that's Leonard Schechter, the co-writer of yep. all four. A lot of the humor in it and a lot of the, the style in it came from Schechter's very diligent editing. And the, I read a story recently that Boughton was trying to uh, sell or somehow uh, distribute the notes, all of the background material and stuff in a big pile. And I think it ended up at the Smithsonian because nobody wanted to buy it. And uh, I would sure like to see that as well, because I think Leonard Schechter really uh, was so critical to the success of the book. And I don't sometimes think I'd, I think he doesn't get the credit he deserved. And he wrote another book, by the way, which I read, and it was pretty good, called Once Upon the Polo Grounds. I don't know if you read that, The Mets That Were, it was called. And uh, it was it was very stylish and very funny as well. So if you're looking for uh, something else to read about baseball, if you can find it, it's uh, out of print in a lot of air, in a lot of situations. I don't even think Amazon has. Yeah, it, I'll have to check that out. You know, also Boughton famously during his season would take notes on whatever was available. I, he's on a plane. He would write on uh, air sickness bag. He wrote on popcorn boxes, and that's kind of a something we can take with us today when you have a good idea you know send a text message to yourself or scribble something down on a fast food receipt or whatever i, I do that all the time please you know wait for a red light or you know, pull over or whatever yeah. but rather than lose that good idea because yeah, a lot of times you come up with great ideas and they're gone in three minutes life is so dynamic and crazy you're going to be thinking on something else you know Belton wasn't going to run the risk of losing that so he would scribble down stuff on on all sorts of unusual, you know, his, uh, you know, his TWA ticket or whatever and stuff like that. And it was funny how the note-taking would make the natives restless, and he was reluctant to tell anybody in Seattle. I think he told Hopley he was writing the book, but nobody else in season. He started to go good when he went to Houston, so he actually told guys. He, he remember, he, at first they were nervous about him, and then he told them he, he had a couple of good outings. He said, oh, okay, I'll tell him I'm writing a book. So then Larry Deaker would come over and say, hey, write this down, write this down. <laughs> yeah. But um, that's just a, a nice little writing tip that – those ideas come and go, and you don't know when the next big thing in life is going to just get your attention away from you. So when you have a good idea, scribble it down somewhere, because those things can often vanish into the wind. I remember when I was a kid, I used to make fun of my dad. He, he carried around a little one of those little spiral-bound notepads. It wasn't as big as a reporter's notepad. It was one of the like half-size ones, and a pen, and he carried it in his breast pocket, his whole life. I can't ever remember him not having his notepad and his pen. And he was forever scribbling stuff down. And, uh, you know, my friends used to make fun of him and my brother and I used to make fun of him. But, you know, he never forgot anything and he always had stuff to hand. If he, uh, you know, he said, oh, I've got to go get some salt for the for the water softener or I, I, I decided I needed this and I knew exactly where to get it. He, it was a really good piece of advice. Uh, when you think about ball four. Pardon me for one second. Yeah. I'm going to say one more thing. Do that at your fantasy draft, especially at your fantasy auction, okay? You run out of money. You don't have a lot of leverage. You're trying to think of pictures you can get for $1 or $2. Get that notepad out and start, you know, make sure nobody can see what you're writing. But I think I, I need to have a blank piece of paper near me at every auction. 
because it's again you're thinking of so many different things. You're trying to land five planes at once. When those names come into your head that you you want to focus on as a certain part of your options, scribble some stuff down. I know guys who also uh, write down the last the last two or one bidder in a competitive auction that they win because they think, well, down the road this guy likes this player, maybe I can make a deal. So it, it always pays to write stuff down. What are your favorite moment or two in the book? Well, first first of all, I mean, I'm going to talk a little bit about stuff that quote unquote could be spoilers. So um, if you haven't read the book, maybe you might want to fast forward a couple minutes on this podcast. I like when they when he gets the start in Houston. He gets traded to the Astros late in the season. He's been begging the whole year for Seattle to start him. They start him once against Minnesota and Harmon Killebrew, the they called the fat kid in his wrecking crew, and they, they beat the snot out of Bouton. But the Astros, who have seen him pitch once, decide to throw him against Pittsburgh because Necro had thrown a good game against the Pirates, and they thought maybe Bouton could duplicate it with a knuckleball. And he ends up striking out 11 guys. He goes into the 10th inning. And the, the great thing is, one of his problems all during the book was that he couldn't get anybody to catch him in Seattle because he needed to throw the knuckleball a lot to keep the feel of it. You know, and the pitch moves erratically. It could easily hurt somebody. Nobody wanted to catch it, and you can understand that. The bullpen catcher didn't want a bullpen coach didn't want to do it, and the backup catchers didn't want to do it. This is before teams would have designated people just to catch guys. You know, the actual players had to do it. And so Bouton gets into the tenth inning of this game, and he swears that he can hear some, one of his old Seattle teammates saying he's throwing the ball too too damn much because they were always on him. They're like, you don't need to throw. Sit down. I don't want to catch you and all that. And here he is on this new team, and he was successful in that start. He ended up losing the game in the 10th inning, but he struck out 11 guys. Uh, curiously enough, he never got another start that season. But I just like to see him have that redemption. Um, that's one of my favorite parts of the book. But also, it's just the little things. It's just the little subtle things that he noticed. Like one time he said uh, they were talking about meal money. I think the meal money was maybe $30 in the major leagues at the time and $15 in the minors. And he was wondering, does that mean you eat half as much or you eat half as well? You know, stuff like that. One time they got into a debate, can you strike out more batters in a game if it's high scoring because you're facing more batters? And people were, were going crazy on that one back and forth. Just the little, the little things, uh, that would, you know, the things they talk about in the bullpen, um, you know, the, the nicknames, the practical jokes. One other thing I'll mention is Fred Talbert hit a home run at a specific time, and he was a pitcher, so you know pitchers don't hit a lot of home runs, but he hit a grand slam, actually, at a specific time in the Seattle game, and they had a promotion called, I think it was called Home Run for the Money, where somebody would be designated for a certain inning, would get a certain hitter, and if the guy hit a home run, you won some money, and if he hit a grand slam, you won a lot of money. So Talbert hits this grand slam, and somebody named, I think, Donald Dubois won $27,000. This is 1969. That's a lot of money. And they had decided, before Talbot had even crossed home plate, they had decided that Talbot was going to get a, a telegram the next day saying that this, this person who won this money was so happy and he felt like he had to reward Talbot with some of the money. And uh, they misspelled his Talbot's last name. It was T-A-L-B-O-T. They, they spelled it Talbert intentionally to make it seem more authentic. And, uh, and Talbot was all excited. He was going to buy a speedboat. He's like, don't, don't tell my wife about it. You know, I'll tell her I want it in a raffle. And, you know, the practical jokes that the guys would play, that's a harmless practical joke. You know, they're not ruining the guy's life or anything. They're just having some fun with them. So uh, I, I really like that practical joke on Talbot. I like Bouton having that start against the, the Pirates where he struck out 11, and, and he could swear that he could hear his Seattle teammates tell him to get off the mound. He's throwing too much. But there's so many little things. It's Ultimately, Ball 4 to me is a book about little things. 
The story about the uh, <laughs> telegram to Talbot reminds me of when they sent him a fake paternity suit, uh, like notice from, they had a lawyer write up <laughs> some kind of subpoena saying he was being sued for a, in a paternity suit. And his the description of his reaction, walking around, staring at it and putting it down and looking off into space. And everybody in the, in the room is, in the locker room, is in on the joke except him, of course. And they're all biting their lips, trying not to laugh out loud. And finally, somebody just can't hold it in anymore. But he was really mad. <laughs> it sounded like he was... Was really mad and one of the guys said you couldn't have pulled a needle out of his ass with a tractor <laughs> i'll never forget that line as long as i live oh boy what a funny book what a keen insight schultz the manager of the pilots who's always saying funny things oh yeah you know famous for saying you go go pound that budweiser boys and they found out later that schultz actually had some ties to a budweiser distributorship so you know he was he was getting that branding every time and then uh, somebody had had a bunch of cookies mailed to them and so Schultz said, hey, go pound those cookies into your voice. <laughs> you know? uh, it's funny that Boughton, even though he didn't agree with Schultz, um, he actually did like Schultz, and he, and he thought that he was um, in some ways a good manager. He didn't think he was a very good tactical manager at all, but he actually thought he was good for the clubhouse because he kept guys loose. And um, it seemed like he had more acrimony for the coaches on the staff. But Schultz, even though they opposite, he fundamentally was opposed to what Boughton was thinking, he did respect Schultz and like him all the same. The coaches got a lot of his uh, ire, that's for sure. I remember he talked about Ron Plaza, who was the hitting coach and liked to strut around in a sleeveless shirt. And he made the observation that said uh, a lot of coaches would make pretty good prison guards because there was that also that one guy who was always counting the cans of, of orange juice and making sure you write them down, boys, write them down so they could be forced to pay for the for the orange juice and stuff like that. Yeah, Ball 4, uh, God rest uh, Jim Bouton. And uh, if you haven't read Ball 4, read it. If you have read Ball 4, read it again. It, it's great. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And Scott, you have a regular podcast, the Yahoo Fantasy Baseball podcast, it's called, uh, on the nose title if ever there was one. Now, first thing I'd like to cover, you had an interesting discussion with your colleague uh, from Yahoo, Frank Schwab, on the July 15th edition, talking about how fantasy owners should maybe rethink starting pitching in the juice ball era. What conclusions did you guys reach? First of all, I think this is the fundamental question of the season in fantasy baseball. And I've been asking a lot of my guests that, and I've been talking about it on other shows. Um, I've, I've talked about it with my friends at Rotowire, our mutual friends, Jeff Erickson and Chris Liss. We may have even talked about it the last time I was on the show, although I can't remember when that was exactly. But, And I'm not here, here's what I'm going to say. I'm not sure I have a great answer to it. Okay, We know strikeouts are through the roof. We know home runs are through the roof. We know the shape of the game is different. And I think a lot of us are struggling with that. It's not aesthetically the most pleasing thing to me, but that, that's okay, whatever. We have to live in the world we live in. One thing I've adjusted to a little bit is I've, I've just gotten less and less accepting of anybody who can't pitch away from contact. Before the season, I was pretty open-minded to the Porcellos of the world and the Hendrixes of the world and the Nicholases of the world, thinking, okay, you know, they're not big strikeout guys, but they don't walk anybody, so they can go deep in games. They may get strikeouts just by the fact that they can accumulate a lot of innings. And, you know, we've seen, of course, teams are so reluctant to let starters go deep in games now that when you find a pitcher who may accumulate innings, that's actually a currency, too. Now, what's happened to that is Porcello's had a horrible season. Nicholas has been up and down. Hendricks has been up and down. Although, I don't really regret the Hendricks shares I have. I've dropped Porcello in some leagues, and I really never know when Nicholas will pitch well. But I think we have to be careful with contact. Um, it's just a danger. Anytime the ball's put in play, even good pitchers will have a lot of home runs. It's just the way the game is now. I think it's also a lot harder 
to find an out of nowhere pitcher. I never before I've been playing fantasy baseball back until the late eighties. This is the first year I can remember having difficulty finding a cheap speed guy or a cheap starting pitcher who's playable. I always felt like even as the tide would rise and as more websites, you know, places like baseball HQ would come up who would, would take somebody who really didn't know what they were doing and say, you know, this is how you play. This is who you get. You know what? I'll actually tell you the 10 guys to get, get these 10 guys. There's so much information now and you know, fan grass is great. And baseball savant is great. And you know, Paul Sparrow's doing awesome work. And Jeff Zimmerman's doing awesome work and Rotowire and Roto world. I mean, there's all these awesome sites. It's, the Twitter is a unbelievable reference point. And so we have more information than ever, and I think we have less effective pitchers than ever. And I was talking about this with Frank actually yesterday. We were talking on the phone. And by the way, he's a football writer for Yahoo. He's also a great fantasy baseball player. But uh, if you're at all interested in football, please read Frank Schwab. He's, he's as good as it gets in his profession and a super nice guy as well. I'm not sure I have a great takeaway. I, some of my teams are doing well because they have Max Scherzer. He was a pitcher who was very expensive. A lot of my teams are doing well because of Zach Greinke. But I, I can't point to you. I wouldn't have told you before the season that Greinke was going to outproduce his ADP or what he cost. I just thought he could meet it, and I would have accepted that if he did. I have a lot of Jose Barrios. I thought he might be a Cy Young contender. He really hasn't been that. He's been kind of the guy he's always been. But I guess in this game, sometimes when you make a par, that's okay. Not everything has to be a hero pick. If you just pick a player and he provides plus value to you, sometimes that's enough. I don't have – my takeaways are I think it's harder to find pitching, so I think maybe we just need to take more stabs at it. I think I'm going to have my bench in preseason in a lot of leagues be more starting pitcher heavy just so I'm getting more guys to audition and more guys to maybe pop and hope I fall into the Giolito story or what Tyler Glass now was this year. Although Glass now was kind of expensive. You could have gotten Giolito for nothing. But but even with that, it's they're the most erratic, frustrating, difficult, challenging guys to understand because they're, they're always adding things and scrapping things and listening to a new pitcher coach and working with a new catcher and changing their spot on the rubber. And then you have stuff like Blake Snell has a Cy Young year last year, and then this year he hasn't been so good, although actually his secondary numbers are very similar. I think a lot of people came to the same conclusion a month ago that Blake Snell is actually just fine. He was just a little bit lucky last year, and he's been really unlucky this year. But pitchers are really difficult to to understand, and I wish I had a great takeaway about this. All I can say is I think there's less playable pitchers, even though what we want from them is less as well because they just don't pitch as deep into games. And then maybe the fourth and fifth starters of, of a previous era that would have been acceptable to us aren't acceptable anymore. But I'm really become a, a, a stickler with the contact. Now, if somebody doesn't strike guys out rather than see them sympathetically, like I think I did before the season, I've actually gone the other way on that. So when you look ahead to future years and I, the, the risk is overreacting, but the uh, the last couple of years, a lot of experts have been saying, go and get your aces in the first couple of rounds of a of a of a snake draft, and don't be afraid to shell out for the ace pitchers in auctions. And this year, at least, that has turned out to be not really terrific advice. It's a it's been a real good path to losing a lot of money and not getting your value out of your draft round. So when you look ahead to next year. When you're sitting at the draft table, how willing are you going to be to invest in a, uh, a so-called ace pitcher in round one or round two or to drop 35 bucks on a pitcher? Has that changed? I like the idea of anchoring a staff with one guy, but mostly focusing on hitting early. And the reason why is because it seems like most of your hitters, even if they don't provide the value you expected, at least you get something, that they have a floor that if they're still on the field, they're going to accumulate stats and you're going to, they're going to provide something positive for you. Again, it, it may not be a profit, 
but it's going to be an accumulation for your team. Where when pitchers go bad, they actually hurt your team. They actually wreck your team. So I would think ideally in a mixed league, if I were five or six picks in, I'd probably like to have one starting pitcher I really thought I could hang my hat on and the rest being offensive players. And also, this may be confirmation bias because it's worked for me two years in a row, but I've also gotten comfortable trying to buy second-tier closers who I think could be first-tier guys. Last year it was Blake Trinan, and then this year I identified Kirby Yates that I thought could be this year's Trinan, the second-tier closer price, but maybe could be the first-tier closer. He'd gotten all the save chances after they got rid of hand last year, and San Diego plays a lot of close-scoring games. I thought that would fit in well. They had made moves to improve the team. I thought the team might be a little bit better. They're under 500 right now. But yeah, they made the investment in Hosmer two years ago, probably to their detriment. They threw a lot of money at Machado. They've accelerated the careers and arbitration clocks of some of their young talent. So I thought that made a lot of sense. But I don't want to fall into confirmation bias either. When you do something and it works, it's easy to say, oh, well, look how smart I was. And you do something that doesn't work, it's easy to say, oh, look how unlucky I was. And obviously the answers are a lot more complicated than that. But anyway, to put this, I'll put a bow on this. I think next year... I want to have that one anchor. I want to have the one guy who I theoretically think could be a difference-making starter, and I'll accept that those guys just can't have any floor because the floor for every pitcher is Tommy John surgery. And uh, But I'm going to focus on hitting because I just think that the, even when a hitter, quote-unquote, goes bad, I mean, Jose Ramirez is having a horrible year, although he started to hit a little bit lately. He's still stealing a bunch of bases, and at least if you own Jose Ramirez, you know you have to play him. At least he's giving you something positive. Also on that podcast, uh, you and Frank talked about something that has been coming up a lot here on Baseball HQ Radio, which is the increasing willingness of major league teams to call up their prospects and put them right into the lineup. But the challenge, of course, then becomes how do you figure out which prospects you want to stash? Because for every Jordan Alvarez, there's a Willie Calhoun who gets called up and doesn't perform. What ideas did you and Frank come up with to help fantasy owners pick out those key prospects who are worth a stash? This is an answer I'm still struggling with because I used to be very much the idea of baseball's hard. For every Mike Trout, there are a bunch of guys. And even Trout, his, his first audition wasn't great, and then he really picked it up the, the first full season. But uh, you know, baseball's hard. Everybody has a different development curve. I'm, I'm going to be moderate on the expectations of young players. And I, I don't know. I have to sit down and actually do some of the math and see if the hit rate is that much higher, or maybe it's just skewed in my mind because some of the guys who have hit have been so impactful with their hits. But here's one thing I have changed is I'm trying, and this is, I think, more of a fantasy football strategy, but it does apply to fantasy baseball too. I used to focus a lot of times on guys called Abanya's All-Stars, and, and Sin Su Chu would be a great example of that. The boring value veteran who's a nice player, but there's nothing exciting about him. He's near the end of his career, and you get him, and nobody screams out, great pick, or nobody's mad that you got him because he's nothing buzzy about this player but a lot of times they're good values. And what I've decided to do with my fantasy portfolios, and again, more in football, but also in baseball, is I'm trying to skew a little bit younger. And what I really like is the young players with experience. I like players who are theoretically on the front nine of their careers, but at least have gotten their feet wet or their cleats wet and been around the league a little bit and you know had some success, maybe struggled a bit, had to make adjustments, had to understand what it's like just to be on the traveling circus of a baseball team and all the games and all the road trips and all the stuff that you you go through because it's such a grind. I'm skewing younger on on players, maybe not necessarily rookies, but uh, I'm trying to get that. And again, Chu was a good was a good player, but you know, there's also older players. Is it better just to be a year early than a year late on a player before he fades? 
I'm trying to get younger with my portfolio. I think that's the takeaway for me. Could there be a possibility that you want to zag while everybody else is zigging young? You might want to really double down on the uh, Ibanya strategy? That's always possible. I mean, we have to consider that the fantasy market is a, is a butterfly. You know, just when you think it's one more knuckleball to, you know, adapt towards Jim Bouton, once you think, or at least a good knuckleball, because we know the bad knuckleballs are like batting practice pitches, but once you think you know where it is, it, it dips and goes somewhere else. That's a good question. I Perception is a fascinating thing. That's one reason why I spend a lot of time when I'm looking at ADP. I know some people laugh at ADP and they say, oh, I don't care about ADP and everything. I think you have to at least consider it in the sense of what things cost or what things are likely to cost. You need to at least have a general idea of that. Don't, don't be a slave to it. Pick your guys. But I spend a lot of time on the NFFC and NFBC ADP pages because they have a thing where you can choose any range you want. And so you can see what the market, how the market is reacting. For example, there's a, and I'm sorry to put football into this podcast, but there's a running back named Melvin Gordon of the Chargers who would be a first-round pick in every league, and he's holding out. And so if I want to know the exact result, the residual effect of that in the draft marketplace, I can go to the, the NFFC page and select the date range that coincides with the fact that you know, when he came out, with the holdout, and I can see, okay, he's moved down 12 slots in ADP. So and this is how everybody's reacting to it. Um, I, I think that's important for the perception game because, again, you know, we talk about zigging and sagging. A lot of that is nebulous. And you know, what's more frustrating when somebody writes an article that we think is based on a straw man? It's based on some temperature gauge that we don't believe in. But in the case of something that's actually tangible like ADP, if you go to some of these websites where you have that sliding scale, you can actually get a snapshot of this is actually how the market feels because this is proof of it right here. Keeping in mind, of course, that ADP is has its own issues. Uh, people look at the average and and assume that everybody's going to play to the average when, in fact, what you need to look at is the combination of the average. And I believe that the NFBC site, at least, also reports the earliest the player was taken and the latest he was taken. Yeah, the range is really important as well, I think. Uh, on the July 22nd edition of your podcast, you talked with Scott Genstad of Rotowire. One of the topics that came up was the closer go-round that starts spinning as we approach the Major League uh, trade deadline at the end of this month. It's a week away. How should we try to take advantage of what could be a closer churn at the deadline? I mean, I think most people know this. Uh, I'm not going to try to claim that this is anything you know, illuminary um, or revolutionary. And by the way, Genstad was another guy who was a great guest. What, what, a, what a good guy and really nice player. Nice person and a really strong player. You're going to look at your losing teams who have closers. That's a luxury that a losing team doesn't need. So a column A for the White Sox, a Romo for the Marlins. I think the Giants should trade Will Smith, but they may be seduced by their recent run and think that they're in the playoff hunt. I, mean, I think it's really misguided. Joe Sheehan, who I know has been on this program, wrote about it recently, that the, if the Giants chase the wild card game, they're really kidding themselves because it's a coin flip. And then you, if you win, you win the right to be the worst team in the National League playoffs where everybody else is better than you and your chances of advancing with that roster are very, very slim. But you know, you're going to look at the, the Tigers. You know, the, I think they're the worst record in the American League right now. So what are they doing with, with uh, Shane Green? And they've actually made it clear that, that Joe Jimenez would be the first guy who gets that look. We don't always know who the closer will be. In the case of the Giants, they have so many good relievers there it creates a couple of problems. One, if they traded Will Smith, who's the guy? And two, because Dyson and Watson are pitching well, maybe other teams would want those guys too. I mean, Watson's a lefty. 
teams are always looking to add guys like that. Smith, of course, left-handed, but can get righties out as well. And that's a really important thing to have. So I'm making my speculative plays. Uh, some of my picks and pans are related to this reliever chase, but um, I think most good players are doing that. Maybe you're adding Sam Dyson. Maybe you're adding Aaron Bomber. Maybe you're adding Nick Anderson in Miami. I don't know that the Royals would have a good closer if they moved Ian Kennedy. I think Kennedy might stay put, man. I feel really lucky to have a lot of Kennedy this year. But identify the bad teams. Identify if they have a closer who you think is going to be shopped. And remember, it's all different now this year because there's no waiver rules with those trades. So we're not going to have all that August stuff. This is all going to come down in the next few weeks. And then if you hit on the right guy, you're going to get, hopefully get, if things really click, you get two months of impact. So I think it's very important if you're a weekly fab league, this is, if you haven't done this already, and I know, I'm sure the people listening to this podcast are with it. So a lot of people have already done that. And I've seen this in my leagues with the footprints. You really need to look at the losing teams. Look, look at the Tigers and the White Sox and the Giants and the Marlins and a couple other teams that aren't in contention and say uh, that the Blue Jays are one of them. Ken Giles has been mentioned in all sorts of trade talk. I'm curious what you've heard following the Blue Jays as closely as you do. But you need to have a plan for those guys. And I know every league is different. There are some leagues maybe you can wait until the news comes down. But in most of my leagues, you need to add those guys ahead of time. Or if you add them ahead of time, you're getting them at your price. You're getting them at the minimum bid or at a low buy-in, where once the news is available to everybody, now you have to out-wrestle the whole room and you have to blow a bunch of your fab. So let's try to be proactive and let's try to make some good spec picks before everything comes down, knowing that some of these guys won't get traded. But I'm sure I'd be very surprised if at least three or four closers weren't traded by the end of the month. Also keeping in mind that the opportunity cost uh, at this point can be pretty low. Uh, if you grab a guy for a buck or two on fab and he doesn't end up getting the closer role because the principal isn't traded, and so you wave him and move on, and it didn't cost you And some a of the receivers have great ratios anyway. Like Aaron Bummer would help your team just because he's pitching well. Well, there is that too, but uh, I suspect, depending on the depth of your league, guys like that who are actually helpful may already be spoken for. The other thing I think to keep in mind is all of these teams you mentioned, or most of them, Detroit, Toronto, uh, Miami, uh, uh, Kansas City, I just read a story the other day that said this could be a record-setting year for teams with 100 losses, which means it's a record-setting year for teams with 60 wins, which means probably not going to be that many saves anyway. Fair point. Totally fair point. All right, Scott, this has been great. Uh, stand by. We'll uh, get into our American League and National League news with Nick and with Jock, and we'll have you back in a few minutes for part two. Sounds great. Scott Pianowski writes for Yahoo Sports, and he'll be back a little later on in the show. Coming up, our Market Watch news reports on player news from the National League and the American League. Nick and Jock are coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. You worried about getting fined? He's going out to get fined. I shouldn't get fined a dog not penny. He screws something up, but I get fined for it. He makes a bad call. All I'm doing is telling him in the dugout the ball's high. He's got rabbit ears and looks over at me, and then he throws me out of the game. Then he tells me I want show time. Who should get fined? Why don't I? Get fine. I get fired. I can't throw him out. That's what bothers me about the game. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League. And leading off, it's our National League Report and our old friend, Baseball HQ Analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. 
Let's start in Milwaukee. Some double-barreled bad news for the Brewers rotation. Uh, last Sunday, Brandon Woodruff was put on the IL with a strained oblique, and then Thursday of this week, Julius Chassin was placed on the 10-day IL, also with an oblique. Looks like they're both going to be out for around six weeks. Uh, Nick, the Brewers still aspire to a playoff spot. It's going to be made much more difficult now with this double blow to their rotation. What are they going to do to replace all those lost innings? Well, veteran starters uh, Chase Anderson and Zach Davies and, and uh, left-handed pitcher Jir Gonzalez might be expected to provide some increased innings per start uh, because the bullpen is likely to be taxed fairly heavily uh, when they're less experienced starters uh, in the rotation. Uh, Adrian Hauser and Freddie Peralta, uh, each of whom has spent time on both the Milwaukee rep rotation and the bullpen shuffling between uh, Milwaukee and AAA are likely rotation candidates. Uh, both Hauser and Peralta have been effective in relief. Hauser has uh, five PQS disasters among his six starts, uh, 21 strikeouts, 10 walks, and 23 in his pitch as a starter, uh, but 32 strikeouts, 11 walks, and 16 relief in, relief appearances. So uh, that's over 30 innings pitched. Peralta uh, 46 strikeouts, 11 walks, and 35.2 innings pitched as a starter, uh, but has allowed uh, 27 earned runs in eight starts, uh, allowed only eight earned runs in 32 relief innings. So both of those guys have been very good in relief, have struggled uh, more as, as w- when they're in a starting role, uh, probably are going to find themselves uh, with a very short leash in their starts if the bullpen uh, has enough people there to back them up. Uh, my guess is Milwaukee's going to be looking for at least one starting pitcher, maybe more as the trade deadline approaches. Yes, I've read uh, Milwaukee's name uh, in a lot of the trade rumors and speculation that go on on the internet at this time of year, and it's certainly going to be heightened now, but it puts them in a bad negotiating position, doesn't it? All of a sudden they have to go with their hat in their hand, and if they're looking for a Marcus Stroman or even a Noah Syndergaard or somebody like that, they better be prepared to dip into their prospect pool. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, it's the kind of situation where uh, the the uh, the, play, the play, people they're calling on certainly know that there's been an issue, and uh, that's going to make a big difference in their attempts to uh, uh, to find someone uh, for the rotation. Uh, the asking price could be high. Speaking of speculating, is there a possibility, given that they know that Peralta, as you mentioned, and some of these other guys have had more success in short runs, that they might go to an opener, bullpen day type of model for at least one of those slots and have you know a, a cascade of guys pitching an inning in a third apiece? I wouldn't be at all surprised to see that happen, and that's why, as we said, we speculated that the, that the three solid starters in the rotation are likely to see more innings. Uh, they're not going to get relieved as quickly, but probably going to throw a few more pitches, maybe go an inning or two even longer than the manager would like to leave them in. But trying to save the bullpen for an opener, um, a bullpen kind of uh, kind of game. Uh, so I think we'll certainly see Milwaukee maybe trying that out uh, over the near term. Moving on, Nick, uh, Washington Nationals first baseman Ryan Zimmerman was placed on the 10-day IL on Monday with a plantar fasciitis problem in his right foot. Boy, that plantar plantar fasciitis i don't know it it just seems to be striking more and more players these days Uh, the team made some other moves with some minor leaguers and pitchers and stuff like that but the big loss here is ryan zimmerman what are the nationals going to do speaking of teams that are aspiring to the playoffs and they had been really charging well at least it's not a new problem ryan zimmerman goes back to the il where he spent more of 2019 than he has on the active roster Uh, and it's not yet clear how much time he'll miss but uh, it wouldn't be a shock if he missed most of the rest of the season uh, for now, it appears that Matt Adams and Howie Kendrick will share time at first. Kendrick has a 295 expected batting average this season, a 107 PX, 
but has actually actually fallen off a bit over the last uh, the last month. Uh, PX and XBA that are 60 points less than those those original numbers. Uh, Adams probably won't help your batting average, but he's been showing plenty of power. 15 homers and 190 at bats with a 162 PX. Uh, so those are the two guys that that look to be uh, getting most of the playing time. Andrew Stevenson has been uh, been up and down since 2017. hasn't done much offensively. Uh, career expected batting average over 144 at bats is 216. Uh, career power index is 35. So very little to re- reason to believe that uh, Andrew Stevenson will do any better this time around. Uh, and so uh, th- those are the guys who are likely to get most of the playing time. Uh, I would guess that Adams and, and Kendrick suddenly are more valuable, perhaps especially Adams because of the power possibility. Yeah, we're projecting him right now for 120-some at-bats. That might go up with a recalculation based on the Zimmerman news, but he was down for eight home runs, which in some leagues, in some category situations, could be a help. Eight points could be worth, eight home runs, I should say, could be worth a point. And we're projecting a 262 batting average, which isn't catastrophic, at least in the way that it used to be catastrophic a long time ago. Uh, moving along, uh, some good news for Arizona. They activated David Peralta from the IL. How does that affect the playing time? in in, uh, in Arizona. Yes, David Peralta was placed on the IL uh, last plate on July 3rd, uh, returns to a 944-289 line and 294 at-bats. Uh, earlier this season, when his shoulder bothered him for the first time, he was out for 13 days. He said he never felt fully right during the month that he was back. And uh, in his latest comeback, he played several games in the rookie Arizona League before being promoted uh, back on track. His return will spell, probably most importantly for fantasy owners, will spell the end of the Gerard Dyson-Tim LaCostro left field job share, which had produced a 246 batting average with only four RBIs during that time, but certainly a lot of people hoping that Jared Dyson would put up some stolen bases uh, while he was in the lineup. Um, Peralta may find himself being eased back into action, but should assume uh, either his customary position in the order, batting third or, or hitting cleanup. Uh, so... That's likely to be the most important uh, result, I think, of that particular call-up uh, at this point in time. Now, Gerard Dyson was p- providing quite a bit of uh, stolen base power, 22 stolen bases so far this year, and he had six home runs, which is the juice ball. Unusual if, for him, yeah. yeah. If you need any more proof that the juice ball exists, uh, six home runs for Gerard Dyson has to be it. Uh, I wonder if they're going to have to figure out a way to, to keep Gerard Dyson in the lineup at least a little bit to take advantage of his speed, although... The home runs belie the fact that he's only got a 697 OPS. Right. Yeah. I mean, the the uh, you know the the, the obvious solution uh, if you're a manager for Gerard Dyson is uh, pinch runner uh, and let him steal the bases when he needs to. So we could see that happening. I think he also does a, a has played a decent uh, decent defensive outfield. So there is that possibility for Dyson as well. A few opportunities to get into late games, that's for sure. Uh, we're projecting David Peralta, meanwhile, for seven home runs the rest of the way in about 190 at-bats or so. If you're looking for stolen bases, no help there. But his batting average should be closer to 290 than it is to 260, which means he could be some help in that department as well, uh, depending on how your situation is as far as batting average goes. More good news on the injury front in Atlanta. Kevin Gosman, who has been pretty good in Atlanta since leaving Baltimore, I guess leaving Baltimore is probably pretty good for most pitchers. He was activated from the injured list. Phil Hertz covered this for playing time today at Baseball HQ. What happens in the Atlanta rotation with Kevin Gosman back in harness? Yeah, Kevin Gosman is one of those guys. He was an LSU dude, and so I watched him fairly closely. Uh, He returned after five weeks on the IL, uh, started and pitched very well against Washington, 
And before getting hurt, he was struggling on the surface ERA of 621, uh, but XERA two full runs less than that, BPV around 92. Uh, he's a good strikeout pitcher, 9.2 DOM, 2.7 command. So uh, certainly a, a, an opportunity for Gosman if he's if he's not, if the injury is completely gone and he's ready to roll, could actually surprise in that Atlanta rotation because there's some good stuff there uh, if, you, if you can put it to use and uh, avoid the situations where he has blowups, which was what was happening. Meanwhile, we're uh, putting Patrick Weigel down for a 1% loss in playing time. I don't know that that really even matters. He was covered in daily call-ups when he got uh, called up and didn't pitch much while he was with the Braves. Uh, the projection for Kevin Gosman is pretty m- mediocre, I'm going to say, Nick. 414 ERA, 138 whip. Uh, he's going to pick up some wins in, in a solid team, but uh, only two or three wins down the stretch we're expecting. Uh, is there any chance that Kevin Gosman should be the kind of guy that we're cautious with rather than just throwing into the breach? Well, Kevin Gosman is not, has not in his major league career performed at the level that we think his skills would seem to, um, to warrant. But, uh, this is a guy with a lot of upside, certainly. And, uh, the question is, can he, can he keep it together to display that upside for more than, uh, one or two starts in a row before he has a horrendous game, uh, that will kill you on the other end. I think that's the big question. Well, certainly so far, 60% strand rate has really hurt his earned run average. His expected earned run, run average is about a, a run below what he's at, 571 versus 449. But, geez, Nick, 449 for an expected area is also not great. No, it's not. I mean, there's certainly better guys out there than that. And uh, so that that's you're right. That's not, not great at all. Uh, so it's, it's one of those things where you, you, you want to take a good look at the guy. He's probably sitting out there on your waiver wire because of this, le- this most recent uh, both this was an injury stint as well as uh, lack of performance. Uh, certainly, someone to watch. The the game the other night against against Washington was uh, extremely good, uh, and so that's the kind of thing you want to keep your eye on. And one other thing about Gosman that strikes me as unusual is he has a base performance value BPV of 101, and that's really good. That's not an index thing. Uh, uh, anything over about 65 or 70 is considered really good, and this is 100, which is not but not at all bad. And yet he's got this very high expected ERA and an even higher ERA. It, it makes no sense to me. I think uh, charitably we can say Kevin Gosman is more of a gamble or a speculative pick than any kind of sure thing. Yeah, I think so too. I, you know, it's the kind of the kind of a player that if you can move him in and out of your lineup based upon matchups, uh, who could have some value. But if you've got to have him in there every single game, uh, there there is the possibility of a blow up any time. And that could be problematic. In San Diego, they look towards the future with uh, Luis Urias, one of their top prospects, a second baseman. He was uh, called up early in the season. Uh, he started the season with the team, I think, uh, because Manny Machado and uh, Eric Hosmer went to the management and said, you got to get this guy on the roster. And he did not play well, and he was sent down. He was hitting r- very well in AAA in a hitter-friendly environment. He's been recalled. He's not doing well so far. What should we expect from Luis Urias? Well, you know, Luis Urias is one of those guys who really seems to be on the Alex Rodriguez path to stardom. Uh, he began raking in the in the, the PCL in El Paso uh, and to a tune of 315, 398, 600 line, 19 home runs. Uh, so return to San Diego had been anticipated because he was playing so well. He doesn't project to be a home run hitter, but, uh, you know, given what's going on with the baseballs these days, who knows? Uh, good news for owners is that his plate skills look relatively intact. Uh 
36 walks, 62 strikeouts over 295 at-bats. Was in the starting lineup uh, last on Saturday, July 20th versus the Cubs. So far has found it difficult to hit at the Major League level. Just 12 for, te- 12 for 72 in limited Major League exposure at the time he was called up. Likely to get most of the starts at second base going forward. Uh, the Padres uh, have, have, have to figure out what to do with Ian Kinsler. Ian Kinsler hasn't been much better than Luis Shirayas at this point. Uh, 211 batting average, 8 home runs through 251 at-bats, and is still in the first uh, year of a two-year deal. So, uh, you know, you, you got to wonder how are they going to play this. Uh, but uh, Luis Shirayas is someone to look at. Uh, at this time around, he still seems to be having trouble hitting. Over the past week, we've seen one hit and 16 at-bats, uh, a 0.63 batting average, but a 250 on on-base percentage because he's getting some walks. So uh, in an on-base league, probably more valuable than one where you expect him to hit his way on base. Yeah, the number that jumped out at me, Nick, when I looked at Luis Arias's uh, track record, a 17% walk rate in the big leagues, which is really good. And then I look next to it, there's a 65% contact rate. So this guy, in half of his plate appearances, is either striking out or walking. And uh, two of the three true outcomes, he's not really uh, a big home run hitter. And I think... It's a cautionary note here is that if you're expecting any stolen bases from your middle infield slot, uh, Luis Gerais is not the place to be looking. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, the thing to, to look at over this past week when he's only had 16 at-bats, contact rate has been 88%, so a little bit better in contact rate this time around, uh, but at the moment that's not helping a whole lot because there's nothing else there uh, to count. And also, you know, we caution people all the time, don't look at what a guy has done in a week to suggest that he's doing that for the rest of the season. A week is a very short run, and uh, well, with 88% could be well within the range of variance for a guy who's really a 70% or 65% strikeout guy because next week it could, uh, you know, be 30% and still be considered normal. Uh, finally, uh, Colorado called up Yonder Alonso, who was cut loose a little while ago, uh, and uh, Yonder Alonso looks like he might get some playing time. <laughs> That's a, quite a, a development for, for him. It is indeed. I mean, Yonder Alonso was cut loose by the White Sox in early July after a uh, had a seven, seven home runs, 27 RBIs, 178 line for them in 219 at-bats, and very quickly was signed by the Rockies. Uh, posted a uh, 1274 OPS in nine games at AAA Albuquerque uh, before getting the call back to, uh, back to Denver. Uh, and... Uh, He'll be reunited there with former Padre and current Colorado manager uh, Bud Black. Uh, Alonso's had a very curious uh, career, uh, drafted with high expectations of blossoming into a power-hitting corner infielder. Uh, Hit 51 of his lifetime, 97 home runs in two seasons between 2017 and 2018, uh, sprinkled the rest over parts of eight seasons uh, and 2,320 at-bats. So hasn't been consistent in the power department. has a very strong eye, 0.56 uh, batting eye lifetime. But what used to be a mid-80s contact rate is now down around the mid-70s. Uh, and with Chicago boasts his hard contact index and his power index dip below 100, um, I think we would safely ignore this completely, except the guy's going to be playing in Colorado. Uh, and that would be a, a, certainly an ideal destination for a batter trying to get his mojo back. Uh, but in 30 lifetime, lifetime games at Coors Field, Guess what his slugging is? 268 uh, and has yet to hit a home run. So uh, maybe Colorado is not going to be the the answer for Yonder Alonso, and Yonder Alonso may not be the answer for Colorado in any sense of the word. 
Yeah, I was reviewing his historical record, and when you look at the base skills, except for 2017, which was another juice ball year, his power index has routinely been well under 100, and 100 is league average, so so that's what you're kind of looking for as a baseline. 2018, it was at 99, okay, fair dues, but in the years before that, 76, 65, 57, 88, there's a 110 in there, and this year, 74. So I think anybody who's looking at Yonder Alonso saying, I need a quick power boost, I think you could gamble on it, but I don't think you should count on it. Right, I agree with you. I think it definitely is a gamble. And, of course, at this point, he's going to be backing up Daniel Murphy at first base uh, and getting uh, pinch-hitting appearances. So that's what's likely to happen. Not a lot of uh, bats coming out uh, for him. And so I think that's the kind of thing to uh, to keep a look at with Yonder Alonso. Uh, probably limited playing time. Uh, and who knows how much of that playing time will actually happen in Coors Field. Some of it could be happening on the road. Uh, so I, I think a real gamble putting him on your roster at this point. Nick, now I'll put you on the spot. Uh, it's our last uh, Market Watch segment here at Baseball HQ Radio before the trade deadline. Give me your best guess. Who's the biggest National League player going to be traded? Oh, my. It's hard to uh, hard to know, I think, at this point. You know, it's it's really tough because all these names get thrown around, all these names tossed up in the air. Uh, and when frequently when it comes down to it, uh, sometimes they don't ever move teams. I would expect some possibilities to be traded with relievers. I think you're going to see Starling Castro go somewhere. Beyond that, I really don't know what to expect from the National League point of view. I expect a lot more activity going on, I think, in the American League. All right, Nick. Thanks very much for helping us out. We'll talk to you again next week, and we may have some trades to talk about. I would hope so. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com, Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD. How you doing? Doing fine, thanks. Uh, doing better than Joey Gallo. He's had a, a surgery on his handmate bone in his wrist. Uh, that's a sometimes a problematic thing for power hitters. The Texas Rangers have recalled Willie Calhoun. We talked about him not that long ago. What's the outlook here for playing time in Texas with Gallo down and Calhoun up? Well, it's obviously a big loss for the Rangers, uh, who are still in the wild hunt, at least marginally. They're five or six games out now. Uh, uh, even with his recent slump and injury, Gallo had kept his batting average above 250, which was big news for the for the entire season. So you combine that with his with the power, and uh, it's been a nice step up for him. But realistically, they're in rebuild mode, uh, um, and this gives the the Rangers a chance to audition some of the younger guys, notably Calhoun, who who's career has turned into something of a roller coaster since he was acquired by the Rangers a couple of years ago. He was demoted in a roster crunch just about a week ago, and you and I actually discussed that I thought he'd be back shortly after the trade deadline, and this injury just starts his opportunity clock a little earlier. It seems to me he's going to hit at the major league level if they let him be, which I think he will now. Um, I I think when they demoted him, it was more important that they um, keep keep exposing guys like Hunter Pence and uh, Danny Santana and Logan Forsyth, veterans who aren't going to be with the club, or at least they hope not. Maybe they can get something for them at the trade deadline. Um, and now the injury um, the injury gives them a, an opening maybe a little ahead of schedule. Yeah, I thought the same thing, I, especially uh, I happened to be watching a Texas game just after the break, and they were talking to uh, to the manager, and they said, you know, are you guys going for it or what's going on? Because they were surprising a lot of people with their uh, performance and as the fact that they were fairly close to the coin flip game, if nothing else, uh, certainly they're not going to catch Houston. And what he said was, hey, you never know. 
you know, we're going to watch this thing for about the next two weeks and see which way the wind is blowing. And if we are still in it at the end of July, well, then, you know, maybe we will go for it. And I don't think they're in it as much as they thought they were going to be. They had a, a run of not great uh, outcomes. And at the same time, here comes Willie Calhoun, who is uh, kind of miffed at being sent down the last time. And I think the critical thing that you hit exactly on the head was they got to just let this guy be and let him swing the bat because he's really good at hitting and they every time he comes up I get the impression that they're trying to get him to change his mechanics or take more pitches or you know do this or do that do something different than what you've been doing your whole life and sometimes that just isn't a good idea yeah, his power actually did disappear last year in the in the minors. So um, there there was that. I mean, he's always had good plate skills. He's been a little bit inconsistent uh, uh, up in Texas, and he he was demoted on the heels of a slump. But I honestly don't think that had as much to do with his demotion as a, as the number crunch and the fact that they. Um, they, you know, they wanted it, like you said, they wanted to play their best team and they wanted to give these guys who weren't going to be with the team in the future, some trade exposure. So, um, now I think it's a little bit different. If Willie Calhoun is on your, uh, free agent list, I would certainly think about picking him up right now. Five home runs in 99 plate appearances is 30 home run pace on a standard 600 plate appearance year. Uh, 30 home runs is not what it used to be, but it's still not bad. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, we We'll talk about Willie Calhoun, I guess, uh, again when Gallo returns. What about when uh, that happens? Well, then, again, if he's not going to return, if Gallo's not coming back till September, I mean, there's no there's no 25-man roster crunch then. Then, obviously, there's there's uh, roster expansion, I know, or, or at least I think the uh, they're, they're working to change that. They're going to start limiting, I think, uh, roster expansion in the coming years. But for now, um, there's there's still a lot of players they can carry, uh, I think. Uh, so and and I and if one or two of those names are gone, like the Rangers are hoping, one or two of the the Danny Santanas and the Hunter Pences uh, are gone, uh, Calhoun's not going to have any problem getting playing time. Staying in Texas, uh, I'd like to talk to you about a playing time tomorrow piece you had a couple of weeks ago about the bullpens uh, in the American League West. And in Texas, Sean Kelly was placed on the injured list with bicep soreness a couple of days after you wrote up the idea that the Rangers were going to have a new closer at some point this year or next, and that it wasn't obvious as to who that might be. Obviously, you weren't pre uh, predicting that Sean Kelly was going to get injured, but he did. So what are you seeing in Texas now with that situation? Yeah, you're right. My comments were more related to Kelly's age, so-so uh, stats for a ninth-inning option. and the hey, He's been decent. He's, he's done the job for the Rangers, uh, but he really doesn't have that much of a track record at this, and uh, uh, he's really kind of an interim closer. The Rangers have better arms, including Jose Leclerc, who closed last year, and Chris Martin, who'd been very good this year and has been recently uh, Kelly's primary setup guy. They haven't had a save opportunity since Kelly went down, but gun to my, my head, I think they try to put Leclerc back in that role to see how he handles handles it. But Rod Trusdale brought up something interesting in the wake of Kelly's uh, IL, uh, IL situation. They replaced him with Rafael Montero. I don't know if you remember him, but he was once a very well-regarded Mets starting pitcher prospect who really struggled at the major league level, uh, was was out last year and, and most of this year recovering from Tommy John surgery in, in the Rangers system. He was a signing they made in the, in the offseason. Montero's again throwing in the mid-90s. He doesn't have, or he hasn't had, the control issues he ha he's had in the in the past, uh, I think he struck out 31 hitters in something like 20 innings in the minors. Um, 
Rod touched on this. I think this is a really interesting speculation, say, for keeper league uh, owners going forward if you're looking for a, a late-in and closer option in Texas. Any chance Montero closes this year, assuming uh, Kelly's out for any length of time? And there's really, as you said, not that many other options. Yeah, I think there's a chance just because of, of the fact that LeClerc has been so inconsistent. LeClerc's been a lot better recently. I think they're going to give him another chance. They really want him to settle into that role. I'm sure if he does, you know, they'll probably try to trade him next year if they're not competing. Uh, this is probably a multi-year rebuild thing for Texas. But uh, I think they'd really like to see LeClerc in that role. In Tampa, they had a big loss. Uh, Blake Snell undergoing elbow surgery. Now, it wasn't the kind of Tommy John level elbow surgery that wipes a guy out for 18 months. Just uh, loose bodies, they said, floating around in there. Usually that's bone chips or something like that. But he is going to miss at least four weeks, probably more like six, uh, right around the beginning of September or partway into September. Snell had already been jock a little bit up and down this year because uh, of inconsistency. And Tampa is a club that relies heavily on bullpen games, but they've lost Snell now. Glasnow's probably gone for the season. Yanni Chirinos was, has been uh, uh, having some trouble. Matt Dodge covered this whole situation in playing time today in Tampa. What's the outlook? Yeah, most of the, the names that Matt mentions were, again, r- reliever types. Uh, so there's going to be more bullpen games, I think, in Tampa. There's two starting pitcher types he named uh, that jump out, one being rookie Brendan McKay, who's obviously inexperienced, but he's pitched pretty well in four starts in Tampa Bay. Uh, 3.72 ERA, an 18-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio over his 19 innings. He's likely going to be returning to Tampa Bay to pick up some of the slack. Um, another name that, that still intrigues me is Jose DeLeon, uh, still trying to find his form after Tommy John surgery rehab. Uh, I'm sure you remember him. He was he was a great prospect in the Dodger system with superb control uh, before moving over to, to Tampa and, and and getting injured. He hasn't shown that control during his minor league time this year. He's walked 23 and 41 innings, but he's still showing plenty of swing and miss, 54 strikeouts during that time. So he's still an intriguing arm and speculation for fantasy owners, uh, particularly ones looking maybe for multi-inning strikeouts uh, down the stretch if he can ever get some semblance of his control back. Uh, um, so it'll be interesting to see what Tampa Bay does over this final uh, two months of the season. I saw the other day uh, Ryan Yarbrough, who had been being used for the short-run close uh, opener role, rather, uh, got six innings in a start. Is there any chance that they were stretching him out to, to turn him into a starter for the balance of the year? Yeah, I think Ryan Yarbrough is going to have to pick up some of that slack. Uh, he has been a starter in the minors, and he hasn't been bad. I mean, his, his ERA is probably going to sit somewhere around the high threes where it is now, low fours. Um, but he's done very well in, in working as uh, as the bulk guy um, uh, in the past. I think he won 15 or 16 games last year. So there's another option that's going to have to step it up if uh, Tampa Bay is going to make the postseason. More injury news in Minneapolis, where C.J. Crone is still wrestling with a sprained thumb. He was on the I.L. He came off the I.L., went back on the I.L. just a few days later. Uh, Minnesota has been losing ground to Cleveland recently uh, in the race for the American League Central and probably the only uh, playoff spot that's going to come out of the American League Central. How big a problem is C.J. Crone going to be for the Minnesota Twins? I actually don't think this particular inju- injury is the is the 
the worst thing to hit the Twins. Uh, keep in mind, they've been missing Eddie Rosario and Byron Buxton with injury stints recently. They both returned, um, and I think both are more important to the club than Crone is. I expect them to get it going a little bit more now. Uh, Miguel Sano has moved over from third base to first base to fill in for Crone. That's something to file away. I think he qualifies now in uh, 25 leagues at first base. And, and over at third base, the Twins have inserted rookie infield utility Luis Arias, who's a terrific plate skills guy with gobs of hard contact. He's hit 347 over his first 128 at-bats in his rookie season, filling in all over the infield and even some left field for the Twins. You know, Crone, on the other hand, has hit maybe five homers, I think, in his last 130 at-bats with a batting average maybe a tad over 250. Um, I'm not sure he's going to get all his playing time back when he comes back. It'll be interesting to see. I was listening to a Twins game on the radio the other night, and they were talking about Miguel Sano at first base, and the gist of the conversation was this might be a blessing in disguise for the Twins because Sano was making a lot of errors at third, and almost all the errors were throwing errors. And we can assume that since first base is not usually called upon to make that many throws, and and Arias, you mentioned, was playing pretty solidly over at the hot corner, that maybe this was going to be a blessing in disguise that Crone, who was struggling, as you mentioned, is now out of the picture, and that gives them a place to put Sano without clogging up the DH spot, which is, of course, where Nelson Cruz has to be pretty much... Uh, Crone could be on the outside looking in coming back, as you say. Yeah, it sure makes a lot of sense to me. I don't know if you've ever watched Arras play, but uh, but he's he's a fun player to watch, and he's 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 got his head into the game constantly. He's always making contact. His contact rate is around ninety three, ninety four percent right now. Um, and and you're right about Sano. Sano's not not good at third base. Uh, if he doesn't have to throw over at first base, uh, he hits for power. He hits for more power than Crone does. So this may be a semi-permanent thing when Crone gets back. Finally, in Seattle, D. Gordon is going to miss multiple weeks. He's got a quad strain. Never good news for a base dealer. Rod Trusdell covered the story for playing time today. So what is Seattle going to do with Gordon out to cover their second base slot? Well, the problem Seattle has is is the guy who, who at least I thought has been their, their second base or maybe a second base utility of the future in uh, Shed Long has a finger injury, and he's been out for a while in AAA. Um, they, they brought up a couple of guys who actually in their short time haven't been, haven't been too bad. Uh, um, they've, been, they've been filling in Austin Nola, Aaron's brother, who's, uh, who's 29 years old. He's been playing a little bit of... Uh, of second base, playing a little first base, too, uh, with um, Ryan Healy out. And Austin Nola's been surprisingly good with the Mariners. Uh, I think um, I would have to check it out, but uh, in uh, in 60-something at bats, let's see here. Anyway, yeah, okay, yeah. In about 54 at bats, he's hitting. I mean, he's got a 9.35 OPS. It's a it's a small sample size, obviously, but he's popped a few home runs. Uh, um, he, he's a journeyman. He's he's 29 years old. He the, the, he he hit seven home runs and 196 at bats at AAA. Um, that's his big power production for for his entire minor league career. Um, so, whereas he might be able to help you over over a small sample size if he can stay hot, um, I, I'm not sure I would put too much stock into his staying power. Another guy, Tim Lopes, they brought up. He had, he got a game in at second base last night. He's stolen 24 bases at AAA. Um, he stole a base in his first game back, or his first game in the, in the majors. In fact, it was his, his major league debut, and he won one for two. So these are guys you won't find out 
you won't find too much about. Nobody's saying they're going to be the second coming, but uh, these are the names that are going to be getting at bats in uh, in in D. Gordon's absence. And safe to say, none of them is going to replace D. Gordon on fantasy rosters. Although uh, Lopes, he's got the right last name for a base dealer, if nothing else. Yeah, it's interesting. They, I was looking for his uh, um, before before you called. I was looking for his uh, um, biography, and I found that he's the brother of Christian Lopes. Uh, um, I I wonder is is that an, is he in relation relation to Davy? I'm not sure of that. I'm not sure of it either. But if he is, at least you could add a few points for pedigree. Yeah, really, exactly. Good stock, but uh, yeah, he's going to run a little bit. So if you're looking for stolen bases and you're, and you're in a deep league, why not take a chance on somebody like that? And uh, Lopes was doing okay at AAA. He was uh, around a 750 OPS with 10 home runs. Uh, you know. You could do worse, I guess, if you, if you scale it down to allow for the uh, more difficult competition in the major leagues. It might not be a complete disaster. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Both of these guys have never had power numbers to speak of at all, but they've both taken probably a noticeable uptick this year, at least at AAA. I mean, the ball's jumping out of the park at, uh, in the PCL and the International League. Um, but the power numbers, I mean, 10 home runs and 358 at-bats, and that's the power surge. I, <laughs> I just don't see anything like that. I, I'm not sure that's going to make it at the major league level. No, it doesn't sound like it, that's for sure. But in the short run, if you're in an only league, hey, you're always looking for at-bats. It's certainly a situation worth monitoring. Uh, geez, Jock, thanks a million for helping us out. We'll catch up with you again in a week. Okay, PD, sounds good. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ's Director of News and Analysis and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, it'll be part two of our feature expert interview with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. But right now it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the rotisserie gaming column, analyst Christopher Olson reminds us to remember the ones left behind after the trading deadline. In the daily call-ups, the Baseball HQ scouting staff reviews all the recent call-ups, including San Diego pitchers Michelle Baez and Adrian Morahone, Kansas City right-hander Josh Stomont, and all the other prospects reaching the show. And in Facts and Flukes, analyst Brian Rudd has a free performance validation report on five National League players, including Starling Marte and Sonny Gray. And those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at Baseball HQ all the time, player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, there's buyer's guides for hitters, starting pitchers and relievers, fantasy market analysis by former big league general manager Brad Coleman in the Market Pulse, we have injury analysis in the Big Hurt and a lot more. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, leading indicators for hitters and pitchers, and a whole lot more. You add it all up, you've got expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. Scott, welcome back. Thank you, Patrick. Good to be here. 
You wrote a couple of weeks ago in one of your Yahoo columns about the likelihood that Boston will be using former starter Nathan Eovaldi as their closer, and at the time you recommended him as a stash, and here we are, he's off the DL, he's in the lineup, and he really got scorched his first time out, uh, three earned runs in two-thirds of an inning, something like that, and it could have been worse, but Matt Barnes came in and rescued him by uh, closing it out with two guys aboard. Uh, Where do you think Nathan Eovaldi stands now as the solution to the Red Sox closer situation? I think the leash is as short as it can possibly be. And their team, the way their roster is set up, and they feel like their window in any season is we can win it right now. I, obviously, they're not expected to win that division. The Yankees have run away with it. I don't know how the Yankees have done it with all the injuries they've had. I tip my cap to, to Brian Cashman and uh, and the job that that team has done because they've lost so many players, so many key players, and they still don't have their full lineup. But the Red Sox feel like they can get in the playoffs. They can make noise. So I would think... If Evaldi doesn't really emphatically write the ship soon, that Boston's going to be in the market for a reliever. I think they might be in the market for a reliever anyway. But I would be very surprised if they don't add an impact arm. And Evaldi was, I thought, a good play at the time because he didn't cost a lot. He'd been dropped in a lot of leagues. You might have even be able to DL stash him. But I think that leash is tiny. And he, he is, he's like one more bad outing away from the team. Just might say, we got to try something different. The headline on a recent column about Travis Darno of Tampa said, the Rays win again. Uh, so I think this is an important lesson. Uh, when we look at Travis Darno and the Rays, what do you think that lesson is? Well, I want to be fair. And I know you, you kind of reached out to me on this with the notes beforehand that it's not like Tampa Bay is right on everything. Um, they they have missed on a lot of guys and you worry, you worry about the fear of confirmation bias that when they're right, you're like, Oh, look how smart they are. When you're wrong, you just conveniently forget it. But what I like about Darno is that Tampa Bay is being creative with him. When I say, when I say creative, I mean, he plays first base. Sometimes they've seen him as a leadoff man. They're getting him. I love anytime I can get a catcher on my team who doesn't have to catch all the time. I think that's a huge plus. They identified him as a player who was productive earlier in his career. I mean, he was a 126 OPS plus guy at age 26. He was hurt a lot with the Mets. I don't know what's gone wrong with the Mets. How, how it seems like so many things fall into quicksand there. So they identified, they thought, an underappreciated asset who they thought could become something, and they immediately put him in play. I, I remember the first time he hit leadoff, leadoff. I think I went to Twitter and made fun of it. Now I'm like, I wish he was on every one of my teams. He's actually the number one fantasy catcher over the last two months, a four-category player. He will take a walk. Um, you know, obviously, he doesn't run, but no no catchers run. And I think I'm going to feel the sting of, when I finally get around to bidding on him in the, the TGFBI, I didn't have a lot of fab left to play with. I really needed some impact to catcher. It's a 15-team mixed league with two catchers required. That's 30 catchers who are starting every week. And I, I'm thinking, how much are people into Darno right now? Can four bucks win? I threw four bucks out because again, I didn't have a lot of money, and I tied with somebody else. I was ahead of him in the standings. I didn't get him. I think the next day he hit three home runs. So obviously, I'm feeling pretty crummy about that. But I like the fact that Tampa saw a player who, you know what, may have top of the lineup skills. You know what, maybe worth playing as a DH occasionally or as a first baseman occasionally. Uh, the Mets obviously can't DH him, but the Mets didn't see him that way. So I love when a catcher gets to be employed in positions that don't require him to be a catcher. And maybe just Darno needed to get a change of scenery. Maybe if he had gone to any other team and gotten a chance to play, something good was going to happen. 
but I like that Tampa Bay is willing to be creative in the usage of Darno and and just the currency in the batting order is something that I care about too. I got Travis Darno for a buck just so I'm just just to make you even uh, sadder. <laughs> <laughs> You're not helping, Patrick. Well, speaking about organizational reputations, this idea cropped up in another column you wrote looking at Wade Miley of Houston, uh, 325, 113 decimals. That's pretty good. Uh, but you also noted that his ERA is way out of line with his estimator metrics like FIP and Sierra. Where do you now come down on Wade Miley? Do you trust the metrics? Do you trust the organization? How do you look at Wade Miley given what you know about Wade Miley? Yeah, a lot of moving parts here. I would like to say try to trade Wade Miley high, but you know, as a high value. But the problem is you need to find somebody who believes in Wade Miley. And he's been so mediocre for a extended period of his career. Although he was good with Milwaukee last year that you just can't say, well, sell high on Wade Miley. You may be in a league where nobody wants to buy into Wade Miley, but Houston's a pitcher park and they have a plus defense behind him. I think, I don't know how much of this is is applicable before the season because some teams are going to have worse defenses and better defenses than I expected. But it's funny how if you and I, I'm still somewhat distrustful of defensive metrics too. I got to bring that up. But if you go to the team defensive metrics on Fangraphs, it's funny how so many of the teams that have that quote unquote good defenses are the smart teams, are the analytic teams, and, and who knows? Maybe that speaks to how they're they're using some of the Fangraphs data or they're using their own proprietary stuff, which will cross over a lot of that stuff. So I guess there could be some cross-pollination there. But then you look at some of the teams who are behind the analytical rush, and it's like the Mariners and the Mets, some of the bad defenses. I, I wonder if some of the Mets pitching staff woes are because the defense is so terrible. So anyway, with Miami, backed by a good team, backed by a good defense. I, I know it looks – the eye the sure screams out like Houston is the hitter park as you see those cheap home runs sometimes down the line. But it really is a pitcher park. It helps that they got rid of that hill in center field which was just, I think, just treacherous. It's lucky nobody ever really got hurt on that thing. So it's a case of, also, you know, how many guys have improved their spin rates since they've gone to Houston or changed the way they pitch? Remember, Garrett Cole was a ground ball pitcher and not a strikeout guy in Pittsburgh. He goes to Houston, striking out a bunch of guys. You know, Verlander looked like he was a good pitcher on the back nine of his career, and then he goes to Houston, and he's like Cy Young candidate again. It's interesting. I wonder what's in that special sauce. Some people think it might be something more nefarious. Maybe the Astros are just smarter with uh, shifting or or it could be uh, pitch framing or it could be a lot of different things. But they've been right. And again, I talked about the wanting to be concerned about confirmation bias and everything. But Houston's been right about enough guys. I mean, they turned Charlie Morton into a really good pitcher. Uh, I, I think that, I, that you have to be mindful that when they invest in something, that's something we need to put credence in as well. In a Master Notes column from a couple of weeks back, Scott, I argued that Eric Sogard's breakout season at age 33 is not for real because of hard hit rate, expected batting average, and the other metrics we so-called experts use to validate or invalidate player performance are all pointing the wrong way for Eric Sogard. And yet here's Eric Sogard. A little earlier, you argued uh, that maybe it is for real, and even if it isn't, that game theory suggests rolling with Eric Sogard. What did you mean by game theory? Again, looking at playing time and a lineup spot as a currency in fantasy, Toronto sees him as an everyday player. They see him as their leadoff guy. I, I know he's not hitting the ball hard, and, and that is frustrating, but maybe with his type of, of swing and the ability to hit the ball, maybe he's just better off trying to make contact. That's another thing, by the way. I talked about 
trying to avoid the pitchers who pitch to contact, who, who need to live with that. One of the great things you can do with your offense is get guys who put the ball in play. And Eric Sargon, very difficult to strike out. He's got a plus walk rate. He's got an OBP of 363, which certainly is deserving of ownership in that batting first slot. And, you know, he's stolen six bases. A lot of times that's a willingness to do it. He's had double-digit steals before. I don't know where the 10 home runs came from because he only had 11 in his career before this year. But um, it's a guy I don't have the longest leash on Sogard. Uh, this is, the, I think, the only the second year he's even had an OB, OPPS plus above 100. It's only the second time he's been a positive factor for an offensive team. But, I mean, he was, a, I think, a second-round pick. I mean, he had a little bit of a pedigree coming into baseball. And it's mostly because he's providing category juice, the home runs and the steals, because the on-base justifies the spot at the top of the lineup, and because I see playing time and lineup slot as currency in today's game. So nothing in his profile, he's age 33, suggests that this is necessary for real. I think he'd be like one of the worst guys to invest in last year. I'm sorry, next year. When, when he comes around next year, we have to view as, okay, he got on a good run, maybe he got some muscle memory going. A lot of times those things don't carry over year to year. Not that I expect people to be in a bidding war over Sogard, but – when somebody, when a team believes in somebody, and I can at least see the tangible on-base skills and the willingness to run a little bit, and he's at the front of the lineup, which protects his run scored. You know, Toronto's got a reasonable lineup. It's not a murderer's row, but it's not bad either. I remember they finally found a spot for Guriel. I talk about something I've been wrong about all year. I've been wrong about both of the Guriels. I dropped Yuli Guriel and Towers. That's just haunting me. Um, 14 home runs in a month. I did not think that was possible. I, I still think it's kind of a mirage, but whatever. You know, what's worse than when you cut a guy and he just goes bananas? You have to live with it. If you, if you never cut a guy you don't regret, you're not flying close enough to the sun. And so I, I accept that you have to make some regretful cuts, but um, I have been wrong on the Guriels. But in, ca- in the case of Toronto's Guriel, he's an outfielder now. So he's another guy not blocking Sogard's path to playing time because Toronto likes him, because I like the OBP skills, because I see the category juice as being somewhat sustainable. I'm in on Eric Sogard the rest of the season. In another column, you recommended Tyler O'Neill of the Cardinals, despite a surplus of strikeouts and a shortage of walks. Uh, what was the appeal of of Tyler O'Neill other than he's a Canadian kid and obviously very gritty? <laughs> yeah, well, I, hoping that he would have uh, marked his territory for playing time. I mean, somebody who has 14 home runs and and 243 at-bats, that certainly plays. Um, you know, 477 slugging percentage. There's been a lot of moving parts to that outfield, to that lineup in general, just with people playing different positions, people being hurt. Uh, the fact that he's so terrible at OBP isn't necessarily a kill shot if he's going to hit for a plus average. I mean, he's a career 263 hitter. I know the 301 OBP means he's not a great real-life baseball player, but I can live with, if he's going to hit the ball hard when he makes contact, I can justify a few more strikeouts. The thing that you worry about is with his walk rate being so tiny, you just start thinking that maybe pitchers would think, why throw him a strike? when you can get him to swing at a bad pitch. But I thought there might be a spike in playing time. I thought the power was real. I thought maybe he could be a 30-home run guy if asked to play a full season. And you know, beggars can't be choosers. I mean, some of these guys in the waiver wire are there for a reason. Your know, guys are in the minors for a reason because they're lacking certain things. In this case, it's play coverage. There are holes in his swing. I was hoping that maybe there'd be a spike in playing time and maybe the power would be legitimate without an average that would hurt you. You said in that same column you've been leery about Danny Santana of Texas and his borderline miraculous season because his career before this season was so consistently mediocre. And In a minute, I'll get into how mediocre it's been. But then you said you might have been mistaken. What made you change your mind? 
Well, he did one season. He was really useful in Minnesota. I mean, again, he wasn't walking that season very much, but he did show the ability to run. He wasn't a totally toothless guy. He'd hit occasionally, would get a home run. I love investing in this offense. Arlington this is the last outdoor season. Arlington let's enjoy it. It's such a favorable place for offense. They believe in him. And just look at the way things have fallen into place. You know, Calhoun came up and didn't make it. Right now, Gallo's hurt. It sounds like his second half could be in jeopardy. So even if they think about maybe getting Santana off the field, uh, they, they may feel like they have to use him. And you know, I know that walkout strike rate is, is horrible, but um, whenever I see somebody who's got double-digit home runs and steals, I'm immediately interested. Remember, it's harder than ever to find stolen bases. It also means we need fewer stolen bases to be competitive, but a lot of with the, the stolen bases is the willingness to do it. Santana has that. He's starting to get good real estate in that order. He's starting to hit the top of the lineup, which is a huge difference. Whenever you have anybody who runs, so often those guys will be batting first or second, or they'll be batting seventh, eighth, or ninth. It's important to me that he's actually batting at the top of the order. So another guy that I think it's one of these things that the moment the season's over, you forget this happened because it's so unlikely to carry over. But he's got something going right now with the, the way he's seeing the ball, or the muscle memory. Or maybe it's just the comfort of knowing he's in the lineup every day. I love investing in this offense. So I, I was distrustful, and I think I had good reasons to be distrustful. And I think the people who just said, you know what, I'm just going to follow the guy who's productive, I think they're the ones who are laughing right now. And I wish for the rest of the season, I have a couple of teams that could really use a player on pace for a 2020 season. I, I wish I had been proactive on Santana. Yeah, me too. Uh, and uh, I imagine everybody who was active and grabbed him is really happy, as you suggested. But when you look at a, a list of OPSs starting in 2015, his big season was in 14, his first year. And then it's like 600, 600, 590, 600, 570, 909 this year for an OPS, like a 300 point increase in OPS in one year. And I'm it just makes me suspicious, and I'm wor- I'm wondering how do you look at this and say this is something I I've got to roll with, or are you at all worried about a crash? Uh, how do you reconcile these conflicting things? He's playing very well, clearly. He's has a 900 OPS, that's fantastic, but his career suggests this is not a real thing. So how do we how do we validate whether it is a real thing? That's a great question. This is why I love the OPS plus stat, which is indexed off 100 being average. His bad seasons, it's like he's in the 50s and 60s, which is an OPS plus so poor that you shouldn't even be in the game. You could be Ozzy Smith on defense and it wouldn't be justified. You, you shouldn't have a job. And now 128, 130, which is, yeah, all, that's an all-star level of production. I, I guess what you do is you be open-minded enough to churn your roster and add the guys like Santana on the back of your roster and you, and you keep them for short samples. And if they continue to produce, you keep them and you have them, the leash is extremely tiny and you have to cut bait. If you know, part of it's the playing time too. You know, this is the guy I always thought that he was just one, two for 28 weeks from losing his job. It hasn't happened. You have to be respectful of the fact that he's put some stuff up on the board and now he has some, I don't know. I just, some credibility built up with that, with that locker room, with that manager, with that lineup. And again, the guys have gotten hurt around him or not played well around him, which has helped. And also he plays a bunch of positions too. I'm still a little bit of a sucker for that. Um, I think of a player like Nico Goodrum in Detroit, who's got some category juice, doesn't hit for a great average, but he qualifies all over the field. And isn't that nice when you have slumps or you have injuries or you have roster 
problems other places and you have somebody a floater you can put almost anywhere so it's nice for guys like that i know this is a very scientific answer a very deep answer but what you do i think is you add these players at the back of your roster if you can you get in as cheaply as you can and you understand that their tryout the the contract you're signing them for is for the absolute minimum and you have to be open-minded to the fact that this could go poof at any time I, i know that's not a very satisfying or deep answer but that's really all i have on this I'm glad you said it, though, because I think that's the key point. Uh, we, uh, My wife showed me an article the other day uh, that had a quote in it, uh, and a guy was talking about statistics and, and our ability to count things and analyze numbers and so forth, and we tend to maybe over-rely on them as being you know, above question, that there's once you have the numbers in front of you, that's how you should make all your decisions because that's that they are sacrosanct. And I think what we're learning, the more that we dive into these StatCast metrics and the more and more advanced and granular metrics, I think in a sort of uh, paradoxical way, the more we know, the less we know, if you know what I mean. We're understanding that there are all of these intangibles that simply don't line up all the time. I think in 75 or 80% of the cases, whatever it is, if you look at these, these metrics, you say to yourself, okay this is how this guy's going to play. And we're pretty close to right a lot of the time. I think the figure Chandler uses is 70 to 72% of the projections are pretty accurate. But that leaves a pretty wide gulf of projections that are not accurate. And our understandings of these players is not complete. And we don't know why. And I think at some point we just have to embrace that rather than trying to say, well, we'll if we just had better stat cast metrics, we could find out, you know, uh, an inch and a half of swing plane difference, and that'll explain everything. And I wonder if we should just say, you know, at a certain point, there's an amount of luck here. It's why we bet horse races uh, by looking at the horses, not just by going by the form, and the form isn't always right. I mean, you think of it, sometimes I think it's best to approach it the way somebody, sometimes the best thing you can do is not be sophisticated in the sense that, Say somebody was new to your fantasy league and they were looking at the free agent wire when Santana was available and they'd say, uh, well, hang on a minute. He's got a pretty good average. He's hit some home runs. He's stolen some bases. I'm new to this fantasy game, but we care about those things. Why, why doesn't anybody want him? He seems like he's playing pretty well. And they're uncluttered by the idea that, oh, no, we have all this proof that Danny Santana isn't any good. Right. Sometimes the way I like to frame this a lot of times is the moment you see plausible upside. That's when you have to act. You can't wait for proof. You can't say, okay, well, Santana thing seems kind of sketchy. I'm just going to wait four to six weeks and see what happens then. Cause he'll be long gone. Somebody will just say, screw it. You know, I just lost this pitcher. He's, he's out for the year. Or, you know, I just, I, I'm really deep at this position. I can cut this player with kind of impunity. It's worth it for me to kick the tires on a player like Santana. Once plausible, once you can build a case that maybe it's real and you don't have to be right all that often. And, and when you are right on a player like that, it, you know, you end up with, you can easily end up with a useful season. I, I try to be open-minded to a player maybe better than I thought. Just because I've never heard of a player doesn't mean he can't be good. Uh, a lot of times we see guys who produce in the minor leagues but aren't prospects. It takes a while for them to become unblocked. You know, Luke Voigt was a player like that. I know Jesus Aguilar hasn't done much last year. Uh, I'm sorry, this year. But last year, you know, all you need to do is say, well, hey, he hit in the minors. He's hitting now. I don't really need to care that he wasn't a top 100 prospect or the team didn't think he was this good. He looks pretty good right now. I, I think sometimes we underrate 
what's going on in front of us, and we overrate what we thought ahead of time. And I think it's really important to be willing to say, I didn't see this coming months ago. I mean, Gurriel's another guy, right? I mean, I had no idea he had this power, and I, I guess he has it. I don't know where it's coming from. It doesn't make sense to me. But I can't just stubbornly say, no, 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 he's a 12-home a run guy. He, he doesn't have the capability of hitting for a lot of power. He's obviously proving me wrong right now. Yeah, he is a 12-home run guy, but nobody thought it would be in a month. <laughs> in a column about outfielder value, you had uh, Bryce Harper, who year-to-date is around $29, in a grouping with uh, fairly reliable value guys like Charlie Blackman and Aaron Judge, who are both around 30 I was a little surprised to see Harper in that group, and I was wondering what makes you think, given Bryce Harper's really inconsistent record of producing value over his career, why you group him in with those other guys who do seem more consistent and well-established? Well, I'll give you a really cute answer to that. I think you may be right. I just said Harper too high. And the curious thing is because I actually think I was early to a drumbeat that Harper just might be overrated. I mean, he hit that monster MVP season in 2015, just black ink all over the place. He led the league in all of the, uh, not, not all of the categories, slash categories, but he 460 OPS, 649 slugging, led the league in runs, led the league in home runs. But since then, there's been a 243, there's been a 249, there's been a 256 average. I know average isn't perfect, and in the case of Harper, it doesn't tell a full story because he's always going to walk a lot. But in a season where everybody's hitting home runs left and right, where Gurriel's hitting home runs like crazy every day, Bryce Harper's 17 home runs for the season. Still has decent run production numbers. It's been a good Philadelphia lineup. I thought it would be a great lineup. It really hasn't been. It hurt to lose McCutcheon just because he's such a good player at the front of the lineup. I know he wasn't in the midst of his best season. He was still going to score probably 125 or 130 runs, and, and man, do I miss him. I feel like Harper was miscast as a first-round pick for a while into the second round, but now I'm thinking he's miscast as a second round pick. I think next year he deserves to go in the third or fourth round, and somebody's going to take him and say, look, he was MVP in 2015. He had no PS plus of 198. Uh, even a bad season, he's always a plus offensive player. It's just a matter of what you're going to get, but he might hurt your average. He doesn't run that much. And you know what else didn't make sense to me, Patrick? A 13-year contract? Don't make a 13-year commitment to anything. I mean, I guess if you marry somebody and you take vows, it's for the rest of your life. I guess that's your 13-year commitment. But I don't get How do we know the Phillies won't be sick of him in a few years or Harper won't want to play somewhere else? I mean, maybe the agent told him, oh, we'll get you out of this deal if you're unhappy. And I don't even know if there's opt-out clauses on either side of it. I haven't studied the contract that closely. But I thought it was a mistake for both player and team to make a 13-year investment. I don't know how anybody can be that sure that they want to uproot their life and they're that happy with an area that presumably they haven't lived in. It just didn't make sense to me. Anyway, I think Harper's been overrated for a while. I think you're right to identify him in this recent piece where I ranked him. He probably should have been a tier lower. You had a tier of younger guys who are starting to establish themselves. Uh, Ramon Laureano jumped out at me, Lourdes Gurriel we talked about. When you look at guys at that level, is there an outfielder who jumps out at you as having the potential to really leap up and join Trout and Yelich and Mookie Betts? Man, that's a great question. I admit Laureano's um, season snuck up on me a little bit. I don't have any shares of him. And, he, and he's a fascinating guy to, to watch because he doesn't walk all that much and he strikes out a ton. Um, obviously a plus defender and he's made a bunch of highlight film plays. I'm always curious at guys who can produce at a high fantasy level who don't do it in the way 
that we want them to. I thought Javi Baez was anywhere from 6 to 12 picks discounted in Chicago this year because everybody's so worried about how he swings at anything. But they haven't. if there's a way to get that guy out, they wouldn't be doing it. You know, he's still having another great season. You know, maybe a, a, set, a down ballot MVP type of season. And I wonder if maybe Loriano, who, who did show a good walk rate in his brief time with Oakland the previous season, uh, this year he's been much more aggressive. And you, and you wonder, maybe in this today's game, maybe rather than trying to work the count and letting good pitches go early in the count, maybe he's identifying pitches that he can drive early in the account. I, I, I think that he's somebody I missed on, that I don't have any shares of, and I think he has the potential to be an impactful player. Um, he's the first guy who pops to mind for me. And, and oh, he's, of course, he's still just 24. And I think he might be a gold glove defensive player eventually. I grabbed Oscar Mercado as a as an early uh, store in in uh, my Tout American League League, which allows that sort of thing. And, and you recommended him in your recent columns, despite metrics that don't quite support his 300-ish batting average and kind of double-digit potential power speed since his call-up, why the positive view of Oscar Mercado again, despite the uh, obvious shortcomings in the metrics? Homer and speed uh, potential. He's on pace for what would be in a full season, 23 homers, 26 steals. And in a Cleveland lineup that isn't deep, I really need you to be linked to the guys who are good, which is Lindor batting first, Santana hitting third. Right now, Mercado's in the middle of that. So you get the extra bat, you get the benefit of Lindor being on base for you. It's always tough to know what to do with players when they play better in the majors than they did in the minors. You know, it used to be, you would say, oh, well, the ball's springier in the majors, but now they're using the same ball in the minor leagues. But um, Cleveland is a team that's aggressive with their running. We've seen it's been the only thing that's been saving Alvarez. Uh, I'm sorry, Jose Ramirez, most of the season, he hasn't been hitting, but he's been running aggressively. And, and I like that Mercado, I think some of his untapped stolen base potential was just being in Cleveland and a team encouraging him to run. So, I, again, I like the, the playing time solidified. The team definitely needed an offensive boost. They've identified him as their number two hitter. I love to have guys at the top of a lineup, even if Cleveland's lineup is sickly in the second half of it. I think the first four, five, six guys, now that Ramirez has picked it up a little bit, and look, they've gotten right back in that AL Central. I, I had picked the Twins to win the division, and I was having a, a heck of a time feeling good about that for about half the year. That lead has almost evaporated. Now Cleveland's starting to get healthier. I think it's probably a coin flip the rest of the way. Cleveland might even have the advantage if their pitching can stay healthy. But I, I know it's hard to trust a player like Ricardo when he plays better in the majors than he did in the minors, but everything I've seen looks legitimate. And in that same column, Scott, you use the example of Mitch Garver, and he's a very similar guy, kind of overlooked in the early going uh, in, in draft season, and you know, number two, number three catcher, who cares? Uh, probably grabbed in most AL only leagues, not grabbed in most mixed leagues where, where the pickings were a little thicker. But Mitch Garver makes a larger point, you said, about how we should be roster managing in season. What was that point? I think exactly what I said about Garver. I, I know that his average and, and slugging aren't completely supported by the StatCast data, and that matters to me. But the great thing about Garver is that, I mean, 299, 387, 663, he can regress a pretty fair amount from that, and he's still really valuable to us. I think what maybe got people off the scent with Garver is that we knew they had Castro and they like his framing. And we knew that they had Ostadillo who may catch some, although it turns out that hasn't really been a factor. And then he got hurt Garver. So 
So you know, once the guys get hurt, it's just easy, easily they're they're out of sight, out of mind, and we don't know if they're going to come back and be good right away. But I think people throw the baby out with the bathwater sometimes where they say regression, like that's it. Okay, the end of the story. This guy isn't – the stack-ass data says he shouldn't be playing this well, so that means he's not good. No, it just means maybe he's not as good as the level of production suggests. Right now, an OPS plus of 171. I mean, if that crater's down to 120 or 130, you still have a really valuable player. I also think he's been a little bit underrated because he missed some of the time with the injury and because that Minnesota team is such a softball team, they can put out a lineup where everybody has home run power. They're going to have a they're probably going to set a record by the end of the year of the most guys with 20 or 25 home runs. So I wonder if the fact that Garver doesn't play every day, no catcher really does anymore, but there's such a deep roster around him. You know, the year Kepler's having, the year Rosario is having, you know, Cruz, one of those guys who's just seemingly going to be good every year until he retires. I think maybe he's a little bit underrated because he's in the sh- lost in the shuffle of a very deep lineup. And you made a point uh, in looking at uh, Darno and Garver and uh, some other guys, Roberto Perez of Cleveland, about not being too enamored of the of the uh, reserve list that you assemble at the draft, that you have to be willing to be flexible. Yeah, that's definitely one of my strategies. I, I look at that as like the Monty Hall problem, which is that it's really counterintuitive, and it, it bended my mind for a while when I learned about it. I may have even talked about it on this show. It's the idea that Monty Hall presents to you the let's make a deal show, and I'm sure half your audience has no idea what I'm talking about, but he would present to you three doors and he'd say, okay, there's a goat behind two of the doors, basically a, you know, a nonsense prize. And then there's something valuable behind the third door and you get to pick one. And then at one point he would offer, you know what? I'll actually tell you that door number two is uh, is a goat. I'm going to give you, so you pick, say you pick door number one. And then Monty Hall goes, you know, door number two is a goat. I'm going to give you that out of, out of the way. And now, do you want to change your pick from your original door number one to door number three? And most people would say, oh, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, you're going to be right 50-50. And it turns out that you should change because you've been given new information. You've been given the calculus of the decision has changed. And even though it, does, it seems completely counterintuitive that it would matter if you change or not, you actually should change every time. And that, to me, is what the waiver wire is, is that you make these really good picks on your roster and you like your bench and you see the upside and you see why they make sense and, and all that. But once we have more information, that's stuff that's actionable in season. We have to be open-minded to the fact that what I thought on February 17th may not apply anymore because playing time is at play. Now guys may have gotten hurt. Guys may have role changes. Guys may be doing different things that we didn't think they could do. And I know this is really frustrating and unsatisfying to a lot of smart fantasy players who used to sit back and wait for things to develop and wait for proof to show itself. And that's how they wanted to make their moves with roster in season. But it's, it's we're at a time now, but it's more about immediacy. Some leagues have first come first serve daily pickups. A lot of leagues, it's the weekly fab, but you can pick up guys ahead of time before they've really popped. I think we need to be more comfortable, not getting to the proof. We've noticed identified plausible upside. That's why we've made our move. And some of that stuff's going to fall flat in its face. And sometimes we're going to look and say, oh, my God, I, I fell for a 10-game sample or a two-week sample. But um, when I look at the players who are most successful in the national contest, I think they are able to get to those players before it's obvious to everybody. If you have to wait till it's obvious to everybody, you've waited too long. 
Monty Hall, Canadian guy, as a matter of fact, uh, who's from Winnipeg. There you go. Uh, is the advice about this willingness to be flexible on players more advanced or more particular to catchers because of their sort of delayed development time? We have to be a little more understanding of a 27-year-old catcher who's just figuring it out when if he was an outfielder, we'd expect that to have happened when he was 24? I think it's a great observation. You look at, and this is something I think I, I may have made this correlation earlier in the year. I compare catchers a lot of times to defensemen in hockey, where most defensemen, when they young defensemen, when they join the NHL, the goal is, look, don't screw up in your own end. Keep the puck out of our net. Keep the puck out of our zone. Don't worry about offense right now. Don't worry about rushing the puck. Just you know, make a good decision and let's clear the puck. And as you get older, we'll ask more offensive responsibility. You may carry the puck more. You may play in the power play, that type of thing. And so it's you look at a catcher, baseball, usually it's, okay, You know, learn how to handle the, the pitchers, learn how to control the running game, learn how to you know, block everything in the dirt, make sure you're playing quality defense, and then we'll worry. We'll eventually get around to, you know, what you can do with an offense. I mean, look, look what happened in Toronto with their rookie catcher. I mean, he couldn't hit at all first couple of months, but they stuck with him just because his defense was so good. And so I don't think it's unusual for catchers to have slow development or they're focusing on the defensive part of their game and the offense is going to come later. I mean, maybe, you know, Darno, he's having a career year in the middle of his career. It's not unusual for catchers to have kind of a renaissance in their 30s where they start to really understand the strike zone and they become more crafted as hitters. You know, we see versions of them that weren't applicable in their early 20s. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. Uh, during the season, Scott, as you know, we ask our experts to talk about players you think will be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. Let's start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners down the stretch. Uh, let's start in the American League. Who's a boon hitter? Well, as always, I will try to give as many names as I can to try to be actionable. I think Nick Castellanos has become an underrated hitter, and I think Detroit's going to try to trade him as they rebuild. Can't wait to see him on a real offense. I'd love to see him on the Cubs. Marcus Simeon's one of my favorite players. This is a guy who was a terrible defensive player who had really poor plate discipline. He's made himself into a plus defender working with Ron Washington, You know, famous uh, for his things that he said in Moneyball, just a really good guy, Ron Washington. It's incredibly hard. Well, Simeon's a plus defender now, and he actually has a really good batting eye. He's earned that leadoff spot in Oakland. I think he's one of the most underrated players in baseball. In a year where we can't find stolen bases, Elvis Andrews is 22 in uh, Texas. I almost said in Houston, but in Texas. I talk about how a lot of people in that lineup locked into that number three spot. I made a trade. I traded closer for him, uh, Andrews, in the front and family leagues that need stolen bases. I think he's going to have a really strong second half. So those are the three guys I like in the American League. And in the National League? It's a week or two less ideal than this would have been if I if I was on earlier in the month. But Manny Margot is really is really popping in San Diego. This is a team that has too many good outfielders or too many playable outfielders, and they finally accepted that Margot is really their only decent center fielder. He's become the regular guy, and you know, that's where defense really matters for fantasy. You need to get the guy on the field, and so he's their center fielder now. He's playing every day. He's moved up. Number two spot in the lineup. He has some pop. He's a 15 for 15 stolen bases. He's been perfect on steals. Just stole two more bases against the Mets the other night. 
and the post type green here. He was a top twenty prospect on some boards a couple of weeks ago, a couple of years ago, I should say. Still just twenty four. I can't say enough how I think he's a, he's a guy to go get in Yahoo leagues. He's under twenty percent owned. I, I know some leagues may not require the full five outfielders, but uh, just to just show how much I like Margot, I'm in one head to head league with with some really great people in Houston. I love the format, except for one thing: we only play three outfielders. We play six infielders, but we only play those three outfielders. And so I have like more good outfielders than I can use. I, I wish I'd not really prioritized it. It got to the point where it's like, okay, I have Chris Davis. I don't really want to play him all the time because this league counts strikeouts against you. And walks are a plus category. It's a little bit of a hybrid format. I actually just decided that Margot off the waiver wire was worth more to me than Chris Davis. I know in a lot of fantasy leagues that would sound absurd to people, but uh, Margot had a pedigree. He's batting second now. The walk strikeout ratio is around one. Whenever you see that, get excited. I, I think he's a, I think he's playing really high level right now, and I think he's going to continue the rest of the season. Uh, two other National League hitters I'll mention in passing. Justin Turner had a bad elbow. It's healed now. Four home runs since the break. Walks and strikeouts, even one ratio. Again, I love that. He was a 300, 400, 500 slash guy the last two seasons. He didn't play that well in the first half. I think the 300, 400, 500 guys coming back, and he's parked at number three in the National League's best lineup. I think it's going to be a big second half for Turner. I wish the Pirates would commit to Kevin Newman as their leadoff hitter. I don't mind Adam Frazier, but Newman is just better in just about every area and has the qualities that you'd look for in a leadoff hitter. With the idea that maybe the Pirates will finally commit to Newman, they haven't done it yet as far as the real estate in the, in the lineup because it's so important, especially in the National League. I think there might be some untapped upside. I think he'll be fine no matter where he hits, but I'd really like to see him take over as their trigger man, and I think that may happen in the second half. Over to the mound in the American League, who's a pitcher who could be a boon for his owners? I know closers who don't get saves are always going to be uninteresting to people, but Chad Green was horrible in the first month of the year, and the Yankees sent him down despite his contract. Let him get fixed. Since he's come back, six walks, 44 strikeouts, wipeout ratios. Now, sometimes he pitches as the opener, and that's not a very good spot for us because you can't get a win, you can't get a save, you can't get a loss if that hurts you in a league. But they've started to move into a more traditional role. He's pitching later in games. He actually picked up a save this week, a, a rogue save that we won't expect to repeat a lot. But maybe there's some win upside down the road. The bottom line is there's going to be a time – in everybody's season where you need to look at those ERAs and, and whips and try to massage them. And I think Chad Green, the rest of the way, I mean, his ERA has been under two since the recall. I think he'll be just as dominant as he was in past seasons and a good, it's not going to fit every format. Of course, you have to, your, your mileage will vary and you've got the season of the taste like any advice that we give, but uh, I've had him in a couple of leagues. I think he's going to help me with the ERA. Oakland has some kind of boring, but effective starting pitchers. We love that big park. Mike Fires doesn't really strike anybody out, but he goes relatively deep in games. You know, you're six or seven innings backed by uh, an Oakland team that's improved on defense. You, know, you love Chapman and Simeon at the left-hand side of the infield. It's a big park, of course. And Chris Bassett's another guy who I think has become playable in those medium and deeper mixed leagues. Um, these guys aren't going to be at the front of your staff. They're ideally starting pitcher six or starting pitcher seven, or maybe you're streaming them for ideal matchups. But I think there might be some run for them. Again, kind of the boring pickups you make, you acquire them at a low cost. And I love that big park. And I like that the offense, I'm sorry, the defense is now a playable factor in Oakland. And in the National League, uh, Boone Pitcher. We talked about uh, closers and waiting. Um, 
Nick Anderson's the eighth inning guy in Miami. I can't imagine that the Marlins won't try to trade Romo. Anderson's strikeout rate is through the roof. Unfortunately, his ERA is also over four, and his whip is in the one twos. So he's not hasn't been great there. The problem with Anderson is when they do make contact, a lot of times it goes the, a long way. And as you said, do we even want closures on sixty win teams? That's a reasonable question to ask. But if you're in a league with a starting pitch uh, with a pitching cap, inning pitch cap like the friends and family league we run has that. Anderson's ability to strike out, you know, with thirteen guys per nine or whatever it is, that will really help you if you need to move that stat. So. I like the strikeouts. I think the whip and uh, the ratios could get better. I think he might have a chance at saves. If the cast of thousands in San Francisco, I don't know if they're going to trade anybody. But uh, Sam Dyson, I think, is going to be the closer. If Smith is traded and nobody else is, he's right-handed. He's got closing experience. I don't know if it should matter, but it seems to matter. So uh, Dyson's a guy. I've added some different pieces in San Francisco, but Dyson, to me, is the most interesting spec guy there. And, and he's got good numbers. I mean, ERA in the twos a whip in a, in a plus area. He's occasionally getting a winner or a save. So uh, we know it's a big pitching park. He had that one bad season where I think people got off the scent. Most of his career, he's been a reliable guy. Scott Pianowski's Boons, Nick Castellanos of Detroit, Marcus Semyon of Oakland, Elvis Andrews of Houston, Manny Margot of San Diego, Justin Turner of the Dodgers, Kevin Newman of Pittsburgh, Chad Green of the Yankees, Mike Fires of Oakland, and Chris Bassett of Oakland, and Nick Anderson and Sam Dyson of Miami and San Francisco, respectively. Let's move over to the Baines now. These are guys about whom you think our listeners should be cautious. Again, we'll start with an American League hitter. A little bit of a cheat because Giancarlo Stanton is hurt. He's been most uh, hurt most of the year, but I think a flaw or a leak in a lot of people's fantasy games, they want to be optimistic about injury returns, and they want to see the best-case scenario for a player. If I were in first, second, or third in the league, if I were one of the teams that looked pretty safe to cash or has a strong chance to win, I'd be really tempted to liquidate Stanton just for a useful player. Like, if I could trade Stanton for a Sin Suchu or something like that and sell the guy who's getting Stanton on, look, you know, you, you'd be getting 20 home runs the rest of the way. You know, Chu's not quite that good. Uh, maybe you have to season the taste what you can really get for Stanton, but... He's been hurt so much. He's been hurt so much of the year. The Yankees are far ahead in the standings. I'm always concerned about teams that are running away from everybody, that they're going to have the luxury of not rushing players back. I I think Stanton still has some name trade value, and I'd be willing to liquidate it. A, a trade that wouldn't make sense on paper before the season, you're going to have to trade him for somebody who went several rounds later than Stanton. But I would be prepared for the fact that he's not going to offer much the rest of the season. I would really be trying to move him. A National League hitter who could be a Bane? Bryce Harper's still a big name. We talked about him earlier. I can't count on a plus average. He's not going to run much. How does he only have 17 homers in today's day and age? And that Philadelphia lineup hasn't been as much fun as we thought. McCutcheon got hurt. Real Muto's been just okay. Secure's been just okay. Hoskins has been just okay. And Philadelphia, who knows? I mean, they could go either way at the deadline. They could be a buyer. They could be a seller. I think we just start have to start accepting. Bryce Harper didn't mean make the all-star team this year, and not that that's the greatest meter of, of what somebody is, but maybe he's just another good player. Maybe the idea that he was going to be the running mate with Trout and, and other superstars, and maybe it's time to stop you know, believing in that for a while and ask for Bryce Harper to actually give us a great season before we get back on that train. Back to the mound we go. Uh, an American League pitcher who could be a Bane. Yeah, worry about David Price. Uh, maybe he's the karma gods are getting to him because he's messing with Dennis Eckersley, but you know, he's got more than six innings just once in his last 16 starts. 
And that start was all of 6.1 innings, six and a third. And I know that's a lot of a major league trend. You know, teams don't want to go as deep in games with their starters. And Price does have his strikeouts up this year, so it's not like he's pitching abysmally. But it's a tough division to make your bones in. Uh, his velocity is down two miles an hour from 2017. So he's at the stage of his career where he's going to have to start doing some of that Zach Greinke stuff. He's not quite in the 90s yet. He's still in the 92-mile-an-hour range. But can David Price reinvent himself as a pitcher who isn't as powerfully dominant? Uh, you know, Again, the strikeout rate's good right now, but he's not getting deep in games. I don't like that division. Uh, he makes me nervous for the rest of the season. And in the National League, a Bain pitcher. You know, Luke Jackson, the closer for the Braves, I've been calling Action Jackson because every time he comes to a game, I look at my phone and the bases are lit up like a pinball machine. He just guy can't throw one, two, three innings. He's gotten a lot of saves. They seem to believe in him. But the Braves are also the team trying to run away with that division. I think they're going to move to a reliever. They don't really have an in-house solution for Jackson because Minter's been so bad as well. Obviously, they lost Vizcaino a while ago to an injury. But I think they're going to move for somebody, or Jackson's going to pitch so poorly he's going to lose the job. I have been a bunch of teams, so... I wouldn't mind if he kept the job. I did trade him in one league, and I traded him kind of inexpensively, but I don't trust Jackson. Uh, Action Jackson is what I'm calling him, and please don't watch him pitch. It will drive you crazy. I also think we're at a time. Let's accept that Noah Syndergaard, I know he's got the great nickname. I know he's got the flowing hair. I know he's got that raw stuff. Well, his strikeout numbers don't really correlate with how great his raw stuff is, and he can't stop anybody's running game. I mean, Margot is practically laughing as he stole two bases the other night. Everybody runs on Thor, and that Mets defense, right? I mean, we've talked about how that's kind of the hidden, you know, why do these guys have such bad BABIPs on some teams? It's because their defense isn't converting the ball into outs. So I think Syndergaard, this is a pan just right, not for right now, but for next year. When you start to see Syndergaard and your mind starts to think of how great he looks on his best days, think about how many times he allows six runs, too. This guy is overdrafted every season because people draft on what's possible for his upside and don't see that he's actually been just an okay to pretty good pitcher. He hasn't really been a star. He hasn't really been a Cy Young contender. We thought it was going to happen. He's also been a injury risk a lot of seasons where he's not pitching complete seasons. There's something that doesn't add up here. He's still in New York. He's a high-profile guy. He's got a great nickname. And, and again, you catch him on that right day, he looks unhittable. But something doesn't add up with Syndergaard. I think he's been overrated for a few years now. I think it's time for us to accept that he's really just a support pitcher for your team. He's not one of those aces out front carrying you. Scott Pianowski's Baines, Giancarlo Stanton of the Yankees, Bryce Harper of Philadelphia, David Price of Boston, Luke Jackson of Atlanta, Noah Syndergaard of the Mets. Uh, Scott, tell our listeners where they can keep up with Scott Pianowski. Sure. Uh, Scott Pianowski on Twitter. I'm sorry, Scott underscore Pianowski on Twitter. Get the uh, blue check mark verified version of me. If you, you want the fake Pianowski, you can take out the underscore. Uh, I'm on Yahoo Sports regularly, writing baseball, writing football, occasionally writing hockey and some other sports. So do a search on my name in Yahoo. You'll come to that easily. If you do go to my Twitter account, you'll see a link to that Yahoo Fantasy Baseball podcast that we do. Um, you know, it's very much inspired the the show. We it's not as statistically in-depth as this program, but i, I got to say that a lot of the good ideas that you guys have, we've certainly tried to borrow from because this, this program is the gold standard as far as I'm concerned, and we're just happy to be sharing the space with you guys. But check out that show, Drops on Mondays. Uh, Michael Salfino and I still do the Breakfast Table podcast. It's some baseball, it's some football. That is a, a premium product, but very inexpensively priced. I know Michael's been on this program before. He's doing great work over at The Athletic. So check out Breakfast Table. 
if you want to catch us. And, uh, you know, you want to talk on Twitter, you know, it doesn't have to be just baseball or, or football. And we can talk about in ball four if you want. You want to talk music. You want to talk golf. I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of interest I have in the world. And that's one reason why I love talking to you, Patrick. We always have a good talk about something when I see you in March, one of my favorite weekends of the year. So if you want to have one of those conversations, you know, let's hang out on Twitter, come with me with a good topic, and uh, we'll go a few rounds. All right, Scott, thanks a million. I appreciate it. My pleasure. You're the best, man. Scott Pianowski writes and podcasts for Yahoo Sports. When we come back, it's our weekly talk with Todd. Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Let me take a minute here to bang your ear holes about one of my favorite topics, international tariffs and trade. Ah, just kidding. I want to bring you up to speed on First Pitch Arizona, Baseball HQ's Fantasy Baseball Symposium at the Arizona Fall League. First Pitch is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year with a new hotel and new dates, but with the same extraordinary package of baseball, presentations, baseball, expert panel sessions, baseball, workshops, baseball, drafts, baseball... And one other thing. Oh yeah, baseball. I've been to First Pitch Arizona maybe a dozen times, and I can tell you firsthand there's absolutely nothing like it for the dedicated fantasy baseball owner. Of course, the main drawing card is the formal sessions, panel discussions and expert presentations by some of the brightest minds in the fantasy baseball industry, as well as guys like me. But the real fun is after the presentations are over, and you can approach these experts, hit them up for advice, talk about strategy, discuss the prospects you're seeing every afternoon in the Arizona Fall League games. Hey, you can even offer to buy me, I mean them, a beer or two. Or more, you know, who am I to stand in the way of hospitality? The fun at first pitch always continues in the evenings, and this year there's the added spice of Major League Playoff games. There's nothing like watching playoff baseball on the big screen and talking baseball with a bunch of other fantasy owners just like you. I've met a ton of people at First Pitch Arizona who are still among my closest friends. Now you'll want to start thinking about this and getting out your calendar pretty quickly because this year's First Pitch Arizona Symposium takes place earlier than ever. It's usually been around Halloween, but this year it runs from October 10th through the 13th, and it's at a new conference venue, the beautiful Delta Phoenix Mesa, a one-relay throw from Ho-Ho-Cam Stadium and less than half an hour from Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport. We even have a special conference hotel rate, and when I checked it was at least $40 cheaper than the best online prices, and that's in Canadian money. If you're a fantasy owner who takes the game seriously and who likes to have fun, there's no better way to spend a long weekend than at First Pitch Arizona, October 10th to the 13th in Mesa, Arizona. Find out more by going to BaseballHQ.com slash first-pitch-arizona or just go to the HQ homepage and click on the bright orange logo over there on the right just underneath the HQ radio logo. Check it out. Get in early to take advantage of some early bird discounts. It's First Pitch Arizona. It's October 10th to 13th. We'll see you there. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly talk with Todd, and I'm happy to once again say to Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Good to be back with you, PD. You uh, covered for Eric Carabell doing a little pinch hitting on his uh, weekly ESPN column about dropping and adding players at ESPN. Uh, I think you said the Carabell blog is an insider thing, so it's behind the paywall, but you're, you think your version's in front of the paywall, so anybody can go have a look. I believe so. I don't see the normal uh, indication that it's behind the wall. So it was. It's posted Thursday. It's it's called uh, Fantasy Baseball Free Agent Finds. Can you count on Cano? 
I don't write the headlines, but yeah. uh, but that's okay. Well, let's talk about some of the players you addressed. Yeah. In, in Arizona, there was some concern that Christian Walker was going to lose playing time when Jake Lamb and Wilmer Flores returned to action. But you believe Christian Walker is still worth adding. So what's the story there? Yeah, first, a little, a little context, just because it's uh, it, 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 with being an ESPN piece, um, the, 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 house, the house leagues there are 10-team mixed. So some of these names may, you know, oh, he's, he's, ava- he's not available in my league. Just so just to kind of put it out there, so contextually, uh, we look at players that are less than 50% on less than 50% of rosters below 50% in ESPN leagues. So that just puts a little context with it. With Walker, it's, well, part of it because Eduardo Escobar has got the flexibility to move to second base as well as Catel Marte has shown the ability to handle the outfield. He's been playing it all year, off and on. They had the the positional flexibility to to do it. And basically, Walker has not, he's continued to hit. He hasn't hit himself into a bench role. So the Diamondbacks have, you know, air quotes, done the right thing and found out a way to keep him in the lineup while moving everybody else around. If anything, it's costing Wilma Flores some at-bats because now he's now pretty much stuck on the small side of, of a platoon, Jake Lamb may not play every day, but he hasn't hit himself into that role yet. And from a fantasy perspective, Escobar's got 10, I think 12, I'm sorry, had 12 games at second. He may get the 20 required to get second and third base eligibility. And I think the two of us lead the, you know, lead the train of, uh, of that. That's good. It is good. Uh, always like to have that extra positional flexibility. I play in only leagues, so none of the guys we're talking about are going to be uh, going right. to be available in those. Uh, and the, a mix fifteen, even probably a few of these names won't come up. But uh, another name that did pop up in your review of outfielders, Oakland outfielder Mark Kana. Yeah. Now Kana is generally again, I mentioned small side of platoon. That's generally what he what he does. Um, this season, however, he's been hitting right-handers better than left-handers. These, these, I think we've talked about before, uh, especially with batters, platoon splits take, when I say years, I mean years, you know, five to ten years for a batter to own his platoon split. So it's, 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 it's not right to say platoona is a reverse split hitter. It's just this season he's handling righties better than lefties. The Athletics... Are a wise organization. They're they're not they're not. I should go back and say it doesn't mean he's not a platoon split hitter. We just the data doesn't prove it yet. So, but the point the other point being the Athletics are noticing that Kana is hitting righties harder than he is lefties, and he's continuing to hit lefties well. Point being, he's he's now a, a full playing a lot more. He's at least now earning regular playing time, and again. ESPN, a lot of ESPN leagues are points-based leagues where on-base is important with the walks because they count in the scoring. So there's a little bit of note here that he's been an on-base machine, which helps out for points leagues. Uh, You know, getting on-base helps in rotisserie leagues too, not just OBP leagues. Scoring more runs, especially with with, with the homer environment that it is today. Getting on-base lets you trot home a lot more often to, to, to pound up those runs and the A's hit homers. So if you if if kind of in your head is somebody who is only on a platoon and when you float 
and you, you sort at bats and he floats to the top, you say, ah, the A's must have faced a lot of lefties this week. Nope, nope, he's playing fairly regularly. And if you're in a league where you can burn and churn, don't shy away from Kana. He's playing regularly right now, and if it stops, you get somebody else. Kyle Seeger of Seattle has been pretty awful this year, a 271 on base percentage, uh, mm-hmm. 641 OPS, pretty pretty skimpy production, but you have him as a mixed league stash and I was wondering why. Yeah, it this this you know, this goes more to our conventional analysis. Statcast numbers love him. His his uh, exit velocity and hard hit rate are career high. And he's always had a problem with batting average. He, the 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 hit tool never Never manifested like some thought he would it would earlier in his career. It's probably because he has such a, a fly ball lean, so the fly balls that don't leave the yard are going to be caught, and he, he he doesn't have that line drive stroke that that's what the stroke that people thought he would have. He developed more of a fly ball nature. Um, the other thing though with with the fly balls and the exit velocity, etc. Uh, our colleague Mike Podhorser, who you've had on the the podcast several different times, sometimes to even talk about his research about how fly ball distance correlates with home runs, and you know not home run distance but fly ball distance, and his fly ball distance is also at a career high. So when you add up that he's hitting the ball harder, the exit velocity is up, and the fly ball distance is is is, is longer. You know, it's not all bad luck because he is hitting a lot of fly balls and his launch angle has gone up a bit, but that is something that can change. The exit velocity is more stable, so it's not out of the realm that the second half or now the last two months, he starts to power more balls out of the yard, and since the article was posted, I think it was Thursday night, he even went yard. So maybe he read the piece and and, uh, wanted to... You know, get, you know, get one for the Gipper. I don't know, but um, Seager is someone that, and this is why it's called a stat, why he's under stash, where um, he has the ability to help some teams. Maybe not now, but I want to have him on in many reserve lists as I can for my for the expected power surge that I see coming. What are we supposed to do uh, with the slumping now hurting Michael Chavis of Boston? He, he he's back in the lineup on Thursday night. Uh, part of it because Brock Holt was re- was ejected, you know, lost in the in the in the Red Sox uh, Yankees game was a a very poor umpiring evening. But when 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 one team scores 19 runs, it tends to get overlooked. But the point being, Chavez was able to come in and and play, so it's it says he's probably ready to go again. It, it was his back. Um, now he was in a bit of a mini slump previous to sitting out a couple games with the back. But before that, he was on another one of his hot streaks. So the question being whether the back was affecting the most recent play. Because he's the classic example of a hitter going through adjustments, you know, the league, coming in, setting league on fire, the pitching adjusting, and then adjusting back. And that basic adjustment being pitchers were beating him up with high heat, and he was going for it, and he stopped swinging at the high heat. And when he stopped swinging at it and made pitchers throw down into the zone, he started to take advantage again. So they're still beating him a bit outside uh, outside the zone with, with sliders and such, which will be the next adjustment. But I'm not convinced that the recent uh, couple of couple of games previous to being out was a slump again. I think he just probably was 
he, his back was sore. He was still in the lineup. And if knock on wood, it's 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 healthy again. I think we're going to see the danger of Chavez. And as the Red Sox lineup proved last night, it's a deep lineup. So if you're hitting sixth, seventh, or eighth, you're you're going to be getting opportunities to produce. And we talked about eligibility. He's got first, second, and third eligibility. And it still remains to be seen. Now that Mitch Moreland is back, how Alex Cora distributes the playing time. But I think Chavez will get more than ample time to be relevant in 15-team mixed. In your review of outfielders, I was also glad to see some must-add love for Oscar Mercado of Cleveland. Why the optimism there? Well, it's more of a it's more of a, a subtle dig at the readers. Come on, guys! It's he's good, and and you know what I, I do the daily notes for ESPN and. And what the cutoff is 50%. If a player is not on 50% of leagues, he's eligible for us to write up. And at this point, it's just we don't want we, we, we purposely don't put him because he he's kind of has permanent residence in the daily notes column. He's producing, uh, you know, to 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 use the uh, to use the ESPN lingo, he you know gets both the gets both the homers and steals. He gets the combo meal. Um, he has solidified Oakland's outfield. He's a full-time player. I like to think that anybody reading, you know, listening to this podcast, is fully aware that Oscar, Oscar Mercado is, uh, you know, is good. He's going to stay, and he's at this point probably bang for the buck wise the best of the acquisitions when the when the minor leaguers got called up. That little bit of a wave in May and June, and should continue to stay so. But you know, the thing is, he's he's on fewer than fifty percent of rosters in ESPN leagues, and to me that's just wacky. He has eight home runs and nine stolen bases in 246 plate appearances, and as you know, Todd, uh, I like to use per 600 plate appearances yep. as a gauge for what kind of production a guy's actually getting to because eight and nine doesn't look that impressive, but if you prorate it out over 600, it's 22 and 20. And if we, if somebody had said to you at the start of the year, I've got a guy who's going to hit 290 with 22 home runs and 20 stolen bases... Uh, he wouldn't have been uh, on only 50% or less than 50% of teams. He would have been on every team that there was. Right, and the thing about that is he's not, there's no, there's no, you know, again, to use the word, there's no luck aspect to it. Those numbers are fully supported. You know, you can't prorate, you know, a third of a season because, you know, there's nothing outlandish. There's no extremes with what Ricardo's doing. Not to say he would get 20 and 22, but also he could get 25 and 28 is the point as well. Uh, you know, the, when Rye, Austin Riley came up and just went gangbusters, well, he's in a pace for 54 homers. You know, he's not going to get 54. 20, you know, next year, I think 2020 is a baseline, and I think 600 plate appearances might even be light. But I, you know, it's tough to project more for someone who's never done it. But who else is going to play? And he's he's not showing his injury prone. He can get 650. He can get 680. If, especially if the Indians' offense improves, in which case you're now looking at 25-25. And, of course, uh, I was talking about Oscar Mercado earlier, and uh, uh, somebody pointed out, you know, he's hitting second between Lindor and Carlos Santana, who's having a great year, which is a pretty good place to score some runs as well. Runs mm-hmm. is kind of the redheaded stepchild of fantasy baseball. Nobody ever counts them, but they count. Oh, absolutely they count. And um, especially this time of year when you're looking to make up category ground, it's tough. It's you know, is the player actually going to continue to score runs? I mean, they're saying Mookie Betts is having an off year, but yet he's on pace to score like 150, 160 runs. 
So a lot of that has to do with, with Raphael Devers and Xander Bogarts uh, going crazy ahead of him, or just behind, sorry, behind, uh, behind him. But yeah, there you can you can trade for runs. It's not so much what the player has done, but what the position is in. And just like you mentioned, when you're in a, in a, in a lineup spot between those sorts of players, that's what I'm going to look for. And what they've done is important, but to me, the lineup spot is key when you're looking for runs. At the start of the season, Todd, Domingo Santana of Seattle was on fire. He was being added all over the place, I'm sure. But he hasn't been on fire lately. He'd been kind of a wet blanket. And you have actually pegged him as a must-drop. Now, why the sudden fall-off or the huge fall-off for Domingo Santana? Yeah, it's the, it's the, uh, it's the context of ESPN 10-team leagues without fielders being available and not many reserve spots. I, I think he's, I think we may not be back until late August, early September if I recall. So it's it's more of he's just not the quality of player worthy of stashing, uh, with, you know, taking up a reserve spot, especially now where you really need to ma- uh, maximize. Actually, no, he's not. It's not that he's out that long. Actually, the, the bigger thing is he's actually just going for an MRI now. And I guess my not I guess I wrote it, so I believe it. He, his his offense in, in an ESPN sort of 10-team mix sort of environment isn't such that I'm going to even wait for the results. I want that roster spot. I want to speculate on somebody. In an NFBC league, I know everybody doesn't play NFBC, but in an NFBC league, say a 15-team with seven reserves, I'd probably wait at least a week to find out the results of the MRI because of the, the, the quality of replacements isn't such a isn't so great however in a 12 team uh nfbc league mixed nfbc i might drop them if there's somebody on the waiver wire so that's kind of to me that's kind of the sweet spot between the 12 and 15 mixed where he becomes a stash versus a drop the opposite is true of Toronto catcher Danny Jansen. He started slow, really, really slow, in fact. But of late, he's been uh, on fire. He's been hitting home runs. He's been driving the ball to all fields and has looked really good. And uh, naturally enough, you say that uh, um, he's more than a stash. And the question I have for you is, based on a relatively short run of tremendous success, uh, how confident can we be that this is the situation, or is there more to it than just uh, you know two weeks of exceptional production? I think it's just, you know, catchers, some, you know, the narrative being, you know, catchers take a little longer. When we say a little longer, we usually mean years, not months. But um, I just, and again, it keeping in context with ESPN, there's maybe only five or six catchers who are just on your roster and you don't, you don't stream catchers. And Jansen is, is not good enough, obviously, to, to be in that nature. He's still a streamer. But in previous weeks, uh, Eric had him as a stash, which meant kind of a wait and see. Um, I think that what I, my point was, no, if Jansen has a good matchup, he should be in the, in the circle of trust of guys to use for a good weekend, a good series, a good matchup, and then dump and use somebody else and then come back to him if he's still available, that sort of thing. So stash implies I'm going to wait and see if it's real. I've seen enough, mainly because I've seen him play against Boston enough in the past several weeks, that I like what I see. I like his approach, especially. I like the approach. I like what I see. He's hitting the ball hard. It's not just some flake, some fluke flares. 
Jansen has been has been hitting the ball hard. So if the matchup is there specifically against lefties, but if it's there in general, I will uh, I will look and and specifically for this piece, not everybody plays in a daily league. He has the Royals and the Orioles coming up in coming weeks. I think there's someone uh, a tougher matchup in between, but. You know, if you have limited moves and you don't want to just completely go goofy with up and down and catchers, he does face a couple of the lesser pitching staffs in the next couple of weeks. Is there any concern when we look at a guy like Jansen who has this terrific run, and it was a really terrific run of about two weeks, uh, uh, maybe 60 at-bats or so, the last seven games he's had, uh, what, what, what did I look at? He's He's won for his last... I don't know, 25 or so. Do we start thinking that we are timing the market here in a way that we really shouldn't be doing as as stat-savvy, you know, number-savvy fantasy yeah. players? Yeah, that's the, that's, the, that's the tough part. And you, you need to look at what you consider. Everybody has their own, you know, pet metrics, which they like to use in, in, to sort of judge. And he's not striking out a lot. And to me, you know that that's that's telling. And three of those games, I don't know who he started. You know, three of those starts were against the Indians. I don't know if it was Bauer and Bieber. I, th- I think it probably was. He may have faced some touch pitching, which is why I'm saying that Jansen is still a matchup play. And he's not striking out, which to me is good. I can look up. I haven't looked up to see. You know, was he hitting? Was he making hard outs? I don't know if he was making hard outs. Um, but and he also only received three plate appearances, which leads me to believe that he was pinch hit for, or he came into the game as a pinch hitter. So um, willing to give him, I, I definitely agree that timing the market is tough, and this is why you need to make educated guesses. I rely on strikeouts and, and quality of opposition, and at least in those regards, I'm willing to give him a pass. Now, if he continues in this trend, and I happen to be pinch hitting for Eric in another couple of weeks, and this trend starts, then he doesn't get such a rave review, and I chalk it up as an L, and, and that's the way it goes. Yeah, he seems to have started striking out again. That's what worries me, because he had a long stretch of, of games there where he literally didn't strike out at all, and now all of a sudden, in the last 12 or 14 games, he has only two games where he hasn't struck out, and he has a couple of two-strikeout games mixed in there. And uh, I'm with you. Uh, when, a, when a batter stops striking out, I'm very interested. And when he resumes striking out, maybe because he's got his confidence back, but it's a bit misplaced, I start to worry a little bit. To be a little bit fair, uh, I, I know he hasn't had the bats, but late, the, the strikeouts are coming down a little bit lately, at least percentage-wise. So that's, we'll see. We shall see. Finally, Todd, a couple of things about pitching. You're bullish on <laughs> White Sox starter Ronaldo Lopez, despite a 5.52 ERA, 1.42 WHIP for the season. What's the deal with Lopez that has you so interested? Basically, to me, he looks like a new guy, and he—if he, it's a narrative that he used the break to to, to to fix things or change things, I don't know. But the uh, since since the break, not only are the results. Uh, much better. He's added a couple ticks to his fastball, and when you go from 95 to 97, that's a you know that's a great range. You know, you go 91 to 93, it's important, but that's kind of where all pitchers go. So I don't know if it's going to throw batters off as much than when you go from 95 to 97. Um, he has added more spin to his slider and his curve, and he's using them a bit more. 
this is awful reminiscent of what teammate Lucas Giolito did. So whether or not Giolito talked to him before he headed off to Cleveland, I don't know for the All Star game. But the point being, there's I, I like this. They're adding adding uh, a couple feet to the fastball and spinning the breaking pitches more are good things. It's increasing the effectiveness and the usage has followed. So you know if you're sorting by ERA, Lopez isn't going to come up. You don't have a, you don't we don't have as much time as we do in previous seasons to take the chance. That, that this is a new pitcher. Lopez working for the White Sox. You know, the team context isn't going to be great. The schedule's good. And we have to keep in mind that Guarantee Raid Park is a pitcher's park if you can keep the ball in the yard. It's a home run park, but it's a pitcher's park. So in this day and age where you got to make, you know, snappy decisions, Lopez is someone I'm picking up wherever I can. And I'll even, you know, AL only especially, I will deal for him. 25 strikeouts over his last 21 innings in his last three starts. And one of the issues, and I'm kind of beating the same drum that I was talking about earlier with the hitters, but when you're talking about starting pitchers, we're now getting to the point where they don't have that many starts left. And yep. that, that kind of magnifies the volatility of everything that we're talking about when we're talking about uh, pitchers. No, it, it sure does. And that's why I need... I need a real tangible difference to, you know, this is the guy I'm going to use to be my staff savior. That might be a little bit of hyperbole, but I, I'm the the extra couple of miles an hour and the added spin. I mean, to, to me, that doesn't happen by accident. And it, you know, you didn't get extra rest over the break. You, you just, you just, you know, you you don't you don't you don't play during the four games, the four days where, excuse me, where you're not pitching. And he's, he's, if he did get a couple extra days, he's, he's sustained it. Now, again, descriptive, not predictive. Will the velocity maintain as it continues to, you know, the weather in the Midwest is going to stay hot? And will he continue with his velocity through September? We don't know. But the point being, in today's landscape, you can't take the chance. If you need to improve your pitching, you have to throw some darts. And Lopez is a guy where, which, I'm, I, you know, who knows? Again, could be wrong. But I'm throwing my darts at Lopez. I just I like what I see underneath under the hood. Right, and and to a certain extent, you have to be aware of your own risk profile where you are in the league yeah. that you're considering it. Uh, if I'm in first place and I'm trying to protect the lead, I don't think I'm going to throw a dart at Ronaldo Lopez. I've got other options right. that I can do. But if I need to catch a little uh, lightning in a bottle, to mix my metaphor, this is exactly the kind of guy we, that I should be looking at because yep. I've got to I've got to do something to try to move my ratios, to try to pick up some wins, try to pick up some strikeouts, and all those kind of things. Because if I don't, I'm not going to win the league anyway. So I. I got to yep. take a chance. And finally, yep. uh, a lot of experts out there talking about relief pitching, you know, particularly who's likely to step up once the reliever on their team gets traded away at the deadline. Uh, we've heard most of the names, uh, Joe Jimenez in Detroit, guys like that. Any relievers that you'd like us to think about stashing or maybe just plain adding to our active rosters pending the uh, deadline dealings? I want to see a couple more extra inning efforts. I think the league may catch up to Stevie Wilkerson. So I'm not going <laughs> to jump on him just yet. Yeah. Um, that floater was effective, but I, I think the league may catch up. All right, now we'll go on to uh, Andrew. Andres Munoz is interesting on the on the Padres. You're averaging 100 miles an hour. So, you know, when you average 100, that means you're throwing it higher than 100 sometimes. So that's an interesting arm. Now, are they going to trade the Padres? Are they going to trade Kirby Yates? Probably not. But he's definitely someone to put on radar, even if it's just to get cheap. 
and have for next year, especially in deeper leagues where, where relievers are important. Um, other than that, I mean, I think that the same names that everybody can say, uh, Sam Dyson, I think, is the guy in San Francisco, even though Melanson got a save last week. Uh, the rest are pretty much the same. Um, I'm just, uh, in, in Boston, I'm not going to dump Eovaldi, and I'm not going to dump Brandon Workman just yet. Um, I don't know how it's going to work out. I'm, I, I you try to figure out what Mender's going to do. I don't know. But uh, Eovaldi actually cleaned up last night and uh, did not get a save in a 16-run lead, but had a pretty efficient ninth inning. All right, Todd. Thanks a million for helping us out. Uh, do appreciate it, and we'll catch up with you again in a week's time. All right, Patrick. We'll talk to you then. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and he appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. When we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries, we'll have the frequent flyer, pitcher matchups, and master notes all next on Baseball HQ Radio. And I don't want the worst umpire in the league telling me where we are in the standing. He can call me a horse manager. I'll buy that. But I don't need to be reminded for this club is the standing. By somebody that can't do their job, that never has been able to do their job. Myself, the coaches, and the players can take only so much of this crap. That was a classic the last two games, I'm going to tell you right now. 23 years, that's the worst I ever saw. Now, when anyone attacks me personally, again, I don't give a s***, because I got more time than all those c- out there. But when they start talking about this ball club, don't back me up against the fucking wall. Because if it weren't for the good umpires in the league, those other guys out there, Brentford and Perpetio, And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have weekend pitcher matchups and master notes. And leading off, our frequent flyer comment, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Arizona left-handed starting pitcher Alex Young. And here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. With the first pick of Major League Baseball's 2015 Amateur Player Draft, the Arizona Diamondbacks selected Dansby Swanson, shortstop from Vanderbilt. Houston's Alex Bregman and Colorado's Brendan Rodgers were taken next, followed by Kyle Tucker at 5, Andrew Benatendi at 7, and Dansby Swanson's Vanderbilt teammate Walker Mueller at number 24, among others. As the page turned to the second round of the draft, Arizona selected TCU left-hander Alex Young with the second round's first pick, 43rd overall, reportedly ranked as the top prospect in Illinois as a high school senior at Carmel outside Chicago in 2012. Alex Young once told a Chicago Tribune reporter that one team said they would draft him out of high school and pay him a bonus of just over $1 million if he would sign. He said no, according to the report. At that point, Alex Young chose maturity over money, according to the Tribune. Fast forward to June 27, 2019, when Alex Young made his Diamondbacks debut, and it looks like Alex Young's million-dollar arm is finally beginning to pay off big time. Through his first five games, four starts, Alex Young has allowed only six earned runs total, and four of those six earned runs came from a July 21st hiccup against Milwaukee. 
Yet despite a solid start to his major league career, Alex Young does not have overpowering stuff. In fact, Alex Young's ERA north of 6 at AAA in 2019 prior to his major league debut should be an enormous red flag. That's why Alex Young, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Sure, with the fastball that sits in the low 90s, it's easy to overlook a pitcher like Alex Young in fantasy leagues. Certainly no one is confusing Alex Young with Cy Young at this point, other than both are left-handers, and to be clear, we're not making that comparison either, well, except for the left-handed part. But there's a pretty good chance that Alex Young could stick in the Diamondbacks rotation going forward. Remember, though, we said a pretty good chance and offer no guarantees. After all, the Major League Baseball trade deadline is right around the corner. Even so, Alex Young has developed a pretty good cutter that has helped produce an exceptional dominance rate of 10.7 strikeouts per nine at AAA Reno in 2019 prior to his June Major League debut. That has translated to a solid but unspectacular 7.4 strikeouts per nine rate at the Major League level through his first five games. It's a small sample size, but from a timing perspective, this late in the season, it might be a very mature decision to add Alex Young as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Weekend Pitcher Matchups, where we look at some of the notable games this weekend, starting with a marquee matchup between two elite right-handers, with Walker Bueller of Los Angeles in Washington to take on the resurgent Nationals and Steven Strasburg. And here with the lowdowns on the showdowns is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. There are 14 pitchers with matchup ratings above one this weekend, and six of them have matchup ratings above two. Garrett Cole leads the pack with the only matchup rating above three at 358. He has the marquee mismatchup in St. Louis on Saturday for an interleague game in which his mound opponent, Daniel Ponce de Leon, not only will have to bat against Cole, but will face a massive matchup rating differential of 479 thanks to his matchup rating of minus 121. Cole looks like a lock. Matthew Boyd, Sonny Gray, and Michael Clevenger are the other three starting pitchers with matchup rating differentials greater than three and also look like locks. Clevenger is scheduled to go on Saturday, Boyd and Gray on Sunday. Though that may be the final start Boyd makes for the Tigers, the latest trade rumors from San Francisco hint that honorable mention matchup man Madison Bumgarner should complete his season with the Giants. Bumgarner has a matchup rating of 149 for a Sunday start versus Chris Paddock and the Padres in San Diego's pitcher-friendly Petco Park. Paddock has a matchup rating of 061, as does the underdog in our other honorable mention matchup, the enigmatic Jason Vargas. This one is also on Sunday, but it's across the country in the New York Mets pitcher-friendly City Field. The equally enigmatic Chris Archer brings in a matchup rating of 101 for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Our marquee matchup is on Sunday in hitter-friendly Nationals Park. Washington's 30-year-old right-handed former phenom Steven Strasburg pits his matchup rating of 111 against the L.A. Dodgers 24-year-old right-handed current phenom Walker Bueller. Bueller has a matchup rating of 164, and the matchup rating differential of 53 in his favor is the smallest among starters with positive matchup ratings this weekend. 
In the National League, the Dodgers have the best records overall versus teams over 500 and against right-handers, and the second-best road record. L.A. has an incredible run differential of 163, while Washington's is 49. The Nats own the National League's top wildcard slot as of now. Versus teams over 500, Washington is right at 500. Against right-handers and at home, the Washingtonians are nine games over 500. Although all the attention has gone to San Francisco's unlikely streak of 21-9 over the past 30 games, Washington's record is exactly the same. Still, L.A. has earned the slight edge. Despite a career-low average fastball velocity of 93.7 miles per hour, Steven Strasburg is putting up a career third-best BPV of 160. Credit his career-best batters faced per game of 25.9, career-high ground ball rate of 51%, and career-low fly ball rate of 29%. In 21 games started, Strasburg has 10 PQS dominance, including one against the Dodgers in L.A. and eight in a row between April 21 and May 28, versus only two PQS disasters. Last season, Strasburg had a PQS 4 and a PQS 3 against L.A. In 10 of his past 11 starts, Strasburg has thrown more than 100 pitches, and in his past five games, Strasburg's ERA is 199. He's coming in on a roll, and his team is on a significant streak, but Strasburg and the Nationals face formidable foes. Three weeks ago, BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Buyer's Guide analyst Stephen Nickran noted that over the past 12 months, Bueller has been one of the National League's best starting pitchers. In 182 innings over those 12 months, Bueller had a dominance rate of 9.9 strikeouts per nine, a control rate of 1.9 walks per nine, a whip of 0.94, an ERA of 2.82, and a BPV of 149. This season, Bueller's BPV is a career-high 167. After being held back by the Dodgers this spring, Bueller began the season with two PQS disaster ones. In his 17 games started since then, he has nine PQS dominance and one PQS disaster. Bueller put up one of his five PQS dominant fives versus the Nationals in L.A. on May 11. This one may be as close as it looks, and Bueller appears to deserve his slight edge against Strasburg. To recap, Garrett Cole, Matthew Boyd, Sonny Gray, and Michael Clevenger all have matchup differentials greater than three in their favor and all look like locks. Madison Bumgarner looks good for his start on Sunday in San Diego, and both Walker Bueller and Steven Strasburg should also shine on Sunday. You can shine in your leagues, too, if you use the BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Matchups tool to choose your pitchers every day. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his weekend pitcher matchups here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about variation and regression. I was talking recently with a friend of mine about the trade value, both real and fantasy, of White Sox reliever Alex Colomay. Column A, as you probably know, is a hottish topic these days because he might be traded in the major leagues, which would open a slot for a new closer on the south side of Chicago. And wouldn't it be great if the new closer happened to be named Leroy Brown? Anyway, as part of the discussion, my friend made the point that Colomay might lose the closer job even if he isn't traded because of his poor skills metrics. He has a dominance rate of just seven strikeouts per nine and a command ratio of two and a half strikeouts per walk. Those are both well short of what we expect from elite level closers. 
Then my friend also raised a point that Colomay has been unusually lucky this year, with a strand rate of almost 80% and an absurdly low hit rate of 13%. That's a 130 BABIP, if you prefer. Baseball HQ analyst Bob Berger made much the same point about Colomay's luck back in early July, when his hit rate was even lower, at 12%. My friend then said something that I think could be dangerous for fantasy owners. He said that Colomay's career hit rate before this season was 29%, and that therefore Colomay's hit rate this season was bound to rise back to that normal 29% level in the rest of the year. This was subtly but crucially different from what Bob Berger said, which was, and I quote, Colomay has been incredibly lucky with his hit percentage, and owners cannot expect that to continue. Now, these two opinions might seem the same, but they aren't. Bob said that the expectation was that Colomay's lucky hit rate couldn't continue. But that allows for the possibility that his luck might continue because, well, baseball players do get into lucky streaks. That is, we might not legitimately expect it to happen, but it darn well might happen. In fact, it could get even lower. That's a different point than my friend's assertion. He had said that not only was the increase, I quote, bound to happen, but that Colomay's rate would go up to 29%. This is actually an improvement on the gambler's fallacy, which we hear all the time. It says, incorrectly, that matters of luck will even out in the short run. That if you toss a coin, say, 20 times and it comes up heads every time, it is much more likely that the 21st toss will be a tail. That's not so. In Colomay's case, a run of 36 games at 13% would inevitably be offset by 36 more games at 43%, just to even the scales at his established 29% mark. Now, to be fair, my friend did not exactly say this. His point was that Colomay's true level is 29% hit rate, and that was what it would be the rest of the season. It's better than the gambler's fallacy, but it's still not right, for two reasons. First, the season was about 60% over when we were talking, so Colomay was not likely to add another 36 appearances to the 36 he had when the comment was made. Math says it'll be more like 24. And that leads to the second issue, and even more importantly, if we believe that a pitcher will revert exactly to normal, what does normal even mean? What is normal for Colomay over 24 appearances? The fact that Colomay himself has had an unusually fortunate run over 36 appearances so far surely proves that a highly fortunate run can happen over a short run of games, and therefore that any such run has to be thought of as normal for a pitcher with that package of skills, especially over an even shorter run of games to come. That, in turn, got me wondering about what a normal range actually looks like. So I went to BaseballReference.com and searched for relief pitchers whose skills have been like Colomay's over the last season and a half. The dominance rates between 7 and 8 strikeouts per 9, command between 2.4 and 2.6 strikeouts per walk, a home run per 9 rate under 1, and hit rates, to be fair, between 27 and 30%. This particular screen returned two relievers, Sam Dyson of San Francisco and Adam Simber of Cleveland. So I used the two pitchers' baseball reference game logs from the start of 2018 through this year to calculate their hit rates overall the 24 appearance spans that they had. Dyson had 98 such spans and Simber had 91. Both pitchers' median hit rates over their spans were 28% and 27%, pretty much in line with their career norms, a little over 27% for Dyson, a little under 29 for Simber. 
and both pitchers showed similar variation from those medians. Dyson's lowest hit rate over a 24-game span was 19%, about 9 points under his normal, while his highest hit rate was about 32%, which is 4 points higher than normal. Simber's numbers, 21% for a low, 6 points under normal, and 38% high, 11 points higher. Now what does all of this mean? Well, to me anyway, it means that from now to the end of the season, Dyson or Simber or Colomay could toss up a hit rate of anywhere from 19 to 38%, and that hit rate would be normal for him given the relatively short 24-game span. And outliers are also possible. As noted, Colomay posted a 13% mark earlier this year over 36 appearances, so we clearly have to include that outcome within the range of possibilities, if not likely possibilities. Now, of course, this analysis misses some other variables. Colomay probably benefits from the quality of opponent hitting in the American League Central, but he's probably stung by his park a little bit and his team's defensive abilities. And there are purely random effects like the weather. The takeaway, though, is the same. What has happened is not a guarantee of what will happen. Regression to the mean is going to happen, but only if we give a long enough stretch of activity for things to even out. In the short run, much more is possible, and we just have to understand that normal means within a range of outcomes that gets wider as the number of events gets smaller. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 26th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 33 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition, Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports, a good friend of mine, a good friend of Baseball HQ Radio, a terrific analyst and writer, and a great guy just in general. I'll be the guest on Scott's Yahoo Fantasy Baseball podcast on August 5th, so check that out. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky, and our weekend pitcher matchups were presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well to Todd Zola, our regular guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast or iTunes. Leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. That really does help us find new listeners, and that in turn helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. And so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. 
Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.